Chapter 34 I let Mr. back in after his morning ramble, which happened to fall between 3 and 4 p.m. that day. Mr. had a complicated ramble schedule that changes on a basis so mystifying that I have never been able to predict it, and took Mouse out for a stroll to the area of the boarding house's little backyard set aside for him. Tick-tock, tick-tock. I took a bit of sandpaper to my staff and cleaned off some gunk on the bottom and some soot along the haft. I put on all my silver battle rings and took them to the heavy bag I'd hung in the corner. Half an hour's worth of pounding on the bag wouldn't bring them all up to charge, but something was better than nothing. Tick-tock. I showered after my workout. I cleaned my gun and loaded it. I pushed aside my coffee table and couch to lay out my coat on the floor and took the leather cleaner to it, being careful not to disrupt the protective spells I'd scored in the hide with tattoo needles and black ink. In short, I did everything I could to avoid thinking about Anna Ash's corpse in that cheap, clean little hotel room shower while the time crawled by. Tick tock. At a quarter to six, there was a rapping sound outside my door. I checked out the peephole. Ramirez stood outside, dressed in a big red basketball-type tank top, black shorts, and flip-flops. He had a big gym bag over one shoulder and carried his staff, nearly as battle-scarred as mine, despite the difference in our ages, in his right hand. He wrapped the end of the staff down on the concrete outside again instead of touching my door. I took down the wards and opened the steel security door. It didn't take me more than five or six hard pulls to get it to swing all the way open. I thought you were going to get that fixed, Ramirez said to me. He peered around the doorway before he eased forward through it, where I knew the presence of all the warding spells would be buzzing against his senses like a locomotive-sized electric razor, even though they were temporarily deactivated. Jesus Christ, Harry, you beefed them up even more. Gotta exercise the apprentice's talent somehow. Ramirez gave me an affable leer. I'll bet. Don't even joke about that, man, I told him, without any heat in the words. I've known her since she was in pigtails. Ramirez opened his mouth, paused, then shrugged and said, Sorry. No problem, I said. But since I'm not an old man whose sex drive is withered from lack of use... Don't get me wrong, I like Carlos. But there are times, when his mouth is running, that I want to punch him in the head until all his teeth fall out. I'll be the first to admit that I'd sure as hell find some uses for her. That girl is fine. He frowned and glanced around, a little nervously, I thought. Um, Molly's not here, is she? No, I said. I didn't ask her on this operation. Oh, he said. His voice seemed to hold something of both approval and disappointment. Good. Hey there, Mouse. My dog came over to greet Ramirez with a gravely shaken paw and a wagging tail. Ramirez produced a little cloth sack and tossed it up to Mister, where he lay in his favored spot atop one of my bookcases. Mister immediately went ecstatic, pinning the sack down with one paw and rubbing his whiskers all over it. I disapprove of recreational drug use, I told Ramirez sternly. He rolled his eyes. Okay, Dad. But since we all know who really runs this house, Ramirez reached up to rub a finger behind one of Mr.'s ears. I'll just keep on paying tribute lest I incur his Nibs's imperial displeasure. I reached up to rub Mr.'s ears when Ramirez was done. 
So, any questions? We're going to stomp into the middle of a big meeting of the White Court, call a couple of them murderers, challenge them to a duel, and kill them right in front of all of their friends and relatives, right? Right, I said. It has the advantage of simplicity, Ramirez said, his tone dry. He put his bag on my coffee table and opened it, drawing out a freaking Desert Eagle, one of the most powerful semi-automatic sidearms in the world. Call them names and kill them. What could possibly go wrong with that? We're officially in a ceasefire, I said, and as we've announced ourselves as parties arriving to deliver challenge, they'd be in violation of the accords to kill us. Ramirez grunted, checked the slide on the big handgun, and slapped a magazine into it. Or we show up, they kill us, and then play like we left in good shape and vanished, and oh dear, what a shame and loss to all those hot young women that that madman Harry Dresden dragged good-looking young Ramirez down with him when he went. I snorted. No. In the first place, the council would find out what happened one way or another. If any of them looked, Ramirez drawled. Ebenezer would, I stated with perfect confidence. How do you know? Ramirez asked. I knew because my old mentor was the black staff of the council, their completely illegal, immoral, unethical, and secret assassin, free to break the laws of magic whenever he deemed it fit, such as the first law, thou shalt not kill. When Duke Ortega of the Red Court had challenged me to a formal duel and cheated, Ebenezer had taken it personally. He pulled an old Soviet satellite down onto the vamps' heads, killing Ortega and his whole crew, but I couldn't tell Carlos that. I know the old man, I said. He would. You know that, Ramirez said. What if the whites don't? We count on our second safety net. King Wraith doesn't want to get his finely accoutred ass deposed. Our challenge is going to remove a couple of potential deposers. He'll want us to succeed. After that, I figure quid pro quo should be enough to get us out in one piece. Ramirez shook his head. We're doing the White King, our enemy, with whom we are at war, a favor by stabilizing his grasp on the throne. Yeah. Why are we doing that again? Because it might give the Council a chance to catch its breath, at least, if we can recover while Wraith hosts peace talks. I narrowed my eyes. And because those murdering sons of bitches have to pay for killing a lot of innocent people. And this is the only way to get to them. Ramirez pulled three round-sided grenades from the pack and put them down next to the Desert Eagle. I like that second one better. It's a fight I can get behind. Do we have any backup? Maybe, I said. He paused and blinked up at me. Maybe? Most of the wardens are in India, I told him. A bunch of old bad guys under some big daddy Rakshasa started attacking some monasteries friendly to us while we were distracted with the vamps. I checked, and Morgan and Ebenezer have been hammering them for two days. You, me, your guys, and Lucio's trainees are the only wardens in North America right now. No trainees, Ramirez grunted. And my guys haven't had their cloaks for a year yet. They are not up for something like this yet. Half a dozen vamps in an alley, sure, but there's only the three of them. I nodded. Keep this simple. Swagger in, look confident, kick ass. You dealt with the White Court before? Not much. They stay clear of our people on the coast. They're predators like the rest of them, I said. They react well to body language that tells them that you are not food. 
They've got some major mental influence skills, so keep focused and make sure your head is clear. Ramirez produced a well-worn web belt of black nylon. He clipped a holster to it and then fixed the grenades in place. What's going to stop them from smashing us the second we win this duel? That's one of the things I love about working with Ramirez. The possibility of losing the duel simply didn't enter into his calculations. Their nature, I said. They like to play civilized and do their wet work through cat's paws. They are not fond of direct methods and direct confrontation. Ramirez lifted his eyebrows, drew a slender, straight, double-edged blade of a type he called a willow sword from the bag, and laid it on the table, too. The tassel on the hilt had been torn off by a zombie the night we'd first fought together. He had replaced it over the last few years with a little chain strung with fangs taken from red court vampires he'd killed with it. They rattled against one another in the steel and leather of the hilt. I get it. We're the White King's cat's paws. I walked to the icebox. Bingo. And we can't hang around as potential threats to his rebellious courtiers if he kills us outright after we help him out. It would damage his credibility with his allies, too. Ah, Ramirez said. Politicians. I returned with two opened beers. I gave one to him, clinked my bottle against his, and we said in unison, Fuck him, and drank. Ramirez lowered the bottle, squinted at it, and said, Can we do this? I snorted. Can't be any harder than Halloween. We had a dinosaur then, Ramirez said. Then he turned and pulled fatigue pants and a black offspring t-shirt out of his bag. He gave me an up-and-down look. Of course, we still do. I kicked the coffee table into his shins. He let out a yelp and hobbled off to change clothes in my bedroom, snickering under his breath the whole way. When he came back out, the smile was gone. We got suited up. Swords and guns and gray cloaks and staves and magical gigaws left and right. Yeehaw. One of these days, I swear, as long as I'm playing Supernatural Sheriff of Chicago, I'm getting myself some honest-to-God spurs and a ten-gallon hat. I got out a yellow legal pad and a pen, and Ramirez and I sat down over another beer. The meeting is at the Wraith family estate, north of town. I've been in the house, but only part of it. Here's what I remember. I started sketching it out for Ramirez, who asked plenty of smart questions about both the house and exterior, so that I had to go to a new page to map out what I knew of the grounds. Not sure where the vamps will be having their meeting, but the duel is going to be in the deeps. It's a cave outside the house, somewhere out here. I circled an area of the map. There's a nice deep chasm in them. It's a great place to dispose of bodies and no chance of being seen or heard. Very tidy, Ramirez noted, especially if we're the ones who need disposing of. The doorknob twisted and began to open. Ramirez went for his gun and had it out almost as quickly as I had my blasting rod pointed at the door. Something slammed against it, opening at five or six inches. I flicked my gaze aside for a minute and then lowered the blasting rod. I put a hand on Ramirez's wrist and said, Easy, tiger. It's a friendly. Ramirez glanced at me and lowered the gun while I watched Mouse rise to his feet and pad toward the door, tail wagging. Who is it? he asked. That backup we might be getting, I said quietly. The door banged open by inches and Molly slipped inside. She ditched the goth wear almost entirely. 
She didn't sport any of the usual piercings. Nose rings are great fashion statements, but in anything like a fight, they just aren't a good idea. Her clothing wasn't all ripped up either. She wore heavy, loose jeans and not slung so low on the hips that they'd threaten to fall off and trip her if she twitched her spine just right. Her combat boots had been divested of their brightly colored laces. She wore a black shirt with a Metallica logo on it and a web belt that bore a sheathed knife and a small first aid kit I'd seen her mother carry into battle. She wore a dark green baseball cap with her hair gathered into a tail and tucked up under it where it wouldn't provide an easy handle for anyone wanting to grab it. Molly didn't look up at us. She greeted the big dog first, kneeling to give him a hug. Then she rose, facing me, and looked up. Um, hi, Harry. Hello, Warden Ramirez. Molly, I replied, keeping my voice neutral. Is this the third or fourth time in the last two days I've told you to stay home, only to have you ignore me? I know, she said, looking down again, but I'd like to talk to you. I'm busy. I know, but I really need to talk to you. Sir, please? I exhaled slowly. Then I glanced aside at Ramirez. Do me a favor. Guess up the beetle. There's a station two blocks down the street. Carlos looked from me to Molly and back, then shrugged and said, Um, sure. Yeah. I took the keys from my pocket and tossed them. Carlos caught them with casual dexterity, gave Molly a polite nod, and left. Shut the door, I told her. She did, pressing her back against it and using her legs to push. It cost her a couple of grunts of effort and a few ounces of dignity, but she got it shut. You can barely shut the door, I said. But you think you're ready to fight the white court? She shook her head and started to speak. I didn't let her. Again, you're ignoring me. Again, you're here when I told you to stay away. Yes, she said, but... But you think I'm a friggin' idiot too stupid to make these kinds of judgments on my own, and you want to go with me anyway. It isn't like that, she said. No, I said, thrusting out my chin belligerently. How many beads can you move, apprentice? But, I roared at her, how many beads? She flinched away from me, her expression miserable. Then she lifted the bracelet and dangled it, heavy black beads lining up at the bottom of the strand. She faced it, her blue eyes tired and haunted, and bit her lip. Harry? she asked softly. She sounded very young. Yes? I asked. I spoke very gently. Why does it matter? she asked me, staring at the bead bracelet. It matters if you want to go into this with me, I said quietly. She shook her head and blinked her eyes several times. It didn't stop a tear from leaking out. But that's just it. I... I don't want to go. I don't want to see that. She glanced aside at Mouse and shuddered. Blood like that. I don't remember what happened when you and Mother saved me from Arctis Tor. But I don't want to see more of that. I don't want it to happen to me. I don't want to hurt anyone. I let out a low, noncommittal sound. Then why are you here? B-because she said, searching for words. Because I need to do it. I know that what you're doing is necessary, and it's right. And I know that you're doing it because you're the only one who can. And I want to help. 
You think you're strong enough to help? I asked her. She bit her lip again and met my eyes for just a second. I think... I think it doesn't matter how strong my magic is. I know I don't... I don't know how to do these things like you do. The guns and the battles and... She lifted her chin and seemed to gather herself a little. But I know more than most. You know some, I admitted. But you gotta understand, kid. That won't mean much once things get nasty. There's no time for thinking or second chances. She nodded. All I can promise you is that I won't leave you when you need me. I'll do whatever you think I can. I'll stay here and man the phone. I'll drive the car. I'll walk at the back and hold the flashlight, whatever you want. She met my eyes, and her own hardened. But I can't sit at home being safe. I need to be a part of this. I need to help. There was a sudden sharp sound as the leather strand of her bracelet snapped of its own volition. Black beads flew upward with so much force that they rattled off the ceiling and went bouncing around the apartment for a good ten seconds. Mister, still batting playfully at his gift sack of catnip, paused to watch them, ears flicking, eyes alertly tracking their movement. I went up to the girl, who was staring at them, mystified. It was the vampire, wasn't it? I said, seeing him die. She blinked at me, then at the scattered beads. I... I didn't just see it, Harry. I felt it. I can't explain it any better than that. Inside my head, I felt it the same way I felt that poor girl. But this was horrible. Yeah, I said. You're a sensitive. It's a tremendous talent, but it has some drawbacks to it. In this case, though, I'm glad you have it. Why? she whispered. I gestured at the scattered beads. Congratulations, kid, I told her quietly. You're ready. She blinked at me, her head tilted. What? I took the now empty leather strand and held it up between two fingers. It wasn't about power, Molly. It was never about power. You've got plenty of that. She shook her head. But all those times. The beads weren't ever going to go up. Like I said, power had nothing to do with it. You didn't need that. You needed brains. I thumped a forefinger over one of her eyebrows. You needed to open your eyes. You needed to be truly aware of how dangerous things are. You needed to understand your limitations. And you needed to know why you should set out on something like this. But all I said was that I was scared. After what you got to experience? That's smart, kid, I said. I'm scared, too. Every time something like this happens, it scares me. But being strong doesn't get you through. Being smart does. I've beaten people and things who were stronger than I was because they didn't use their heads, or because I used what I had better than they did. It isn't about muscle, kiddo, magical or otherwise. It's about your attitude, about your mind. She nodded slowly and said, About doing things for the right reasons. You don't throw down like this just because you're strong enough to do it, I said. You do it because you don't have much choice. You do it because it's unacceptable to walk away and still live with yourself later. She stared at me for a second, and then her eyes widened. 
Otherwise, you're using power for the sake of using power. I nodded. And power tends to corrupt. It isn't hard to love using it, Molly. You've got to do it with the right attitude, or... Or the power starts using you, she said. She'd heard the argument before, but this was the first time she said the words slowly, thoughtfully, as if she'd actually understood them, instead of just parroting them back to me. Then she looked up. That's why you do it. Why you help people. You're using the power for someone other than yourself. That's part of it, I said. Yeah. I feel sort of stupid. There's a difference in knowing something, I poked her head again, and knowing it, I touched the middle of her sternum. See? She nodded slowly. Then she took the strand back from me and put it back on her wrist. There was just enough left to let her tie it again. She held it up so that I could see and said, So that I'll remember. I grinned at her and hugged her. She hugged back. Did you get a lesson like this? Pretty much, I said, from this grumpy old Scot on a farm in the Ozarks. When do I stop feeling like an idiot? I'll let you know when I do, I said, and she laughed. We parted the hug and I met her eyes. You still in? Yes, she said simply. Then you'll ride up with Ramirez and me. We'll stop outside the compound and you'll stay with the car. She nodded seriously. What do I do? Keep your eyes and ears open. Stay alert for anything you might sense. Don't talk to anyone. If anyone approaches you, leave. If you see a bunch of bad guys showing up, start honking the horn and get out. Okay, she said. She looked a little pale. I pulled a silver cylinder out of my pocket. This is a hypersonic whistle. Mouse can hear it from a mile away. If we get in trouble, I'll blow it and he'll start barking about it. He'll face where we are. Try to get the car as close as you can. I'll have Mouse with me, she said, and looked considerably relieved. I nodded. Almost always better not to work alone. What if... what if I do something wrong? I shrugged. What if you do? That's always possible, Molly. But the only way never to do the wrong thing is never to do anything, she finished. Bingo! I put a hand on her shoulder. Look, you're smart enough. I've taught you everything I know about the white court. Keep your eyes open. Use your head, your judgment. If things get bad and I haven't started blowing the whistle, run like hell. If it gets past 10 p.m. and you haven't heard from me, do the same. Get home and tell your folks. All right, she said quietly. She took a deep breath and let it out unsteadily. This is scary. And we're doing it anyway, I said. That makes us brave, right? If we get away with it, I said. If we don't, it just makes us stupid. Her eyes widened for a second, and then she let out a full-throated laugh. Ready? I asked her. Ready, sir. Good. Outside, gravel crunched as Ramirez returned with the beetle. All right, apprentice, I said. Get Mouse's lead on him, will you? Let's do it. Chapter 35 Chateau Wraith hadn't changed much since my last visit. That's one of the good things about dealing with nigh-immortals. They tend to adjust badly to change and avoid it wherever possible. It was a big place, north of the city, 
where the countryside rolls over a surprising variety of terrain. Flat stretches of rich land that used to be farms, but are mostly big, expensive properties now. Dozens of little rivers and big creeks have carved hills and valleys more steep than most people expect from the Midwest. The trees out in that area, one of the older settlements in the United States, can be absolutely huge, and it would cost me five or six years' worth of income to buy even a tiny house. Chateau Wraith is surrounded by a forest of those enormous ancient trees, as if someone had managed to transplant a section of Sherwood Forest itself from Britain. You can't see a thing of the estate from any of the roads around it. I knew it was at least a half-mile run through the trees before you got to the grounds, which were enormous in their own right. Translation. You weren't getting away from the chateau on foot speed alone. Not if there were vampires there to run you down. There was one new feature to the grounds. The eight-foot-high stone wall was the same, but it had been topped with a double helix of razor wire, and lighting had been spaced along the outside of the wall. I could see security cameras at regular intervals as well. The old Lord Wraith had disdained the more modern security precautions in favor of the protection of intense personal arrogance. Lara, however, seemed more willing to acknowledge threats, to listen to her mortal security staff, and to employ the countermeasures they suggested. It would certainly help keep the mortal riffraff out, and the Council had plenty of mortal allies. More important, it said something about Lara's administration. She found skilled subordinates and then listened to them. She might not look as overwhelmingly confident as Lord Wraith had, but then Lord Wraith wasn't running the show anymore either, even if that wasn't public knowledge in the magical community. I reflected that it was entirely possible that I might have done the Council and the world something of a disservice by helping Lara assume control. Lord Wraith had been proud and brittle. I had the feeling that Lara would prove to be far, far more capable and far more dangerous as the de facto White King. And here I was, about to go to her aid again and help solidify her power even more. Stop here, I told Molly quietly. The gates to the chateau were still a quarter mile down the road. This is as close as you get. Right, Molly said, and pulled the beetle over onto the far side of the road, I noted with approval, where anyone wanting to come to her would have to cross the open pavement to get there. Mouse, I said, stay here with Molly and listen for us. Take care of her. Mouse looked unhappily at me from the back seat, where he'd sat with Ramirez, but leaned forward and dropped his shaggy chin onto my shoulder. I gave him a quick hug and said in a gruff voice, Don't worry, we'll be fine. His tail thumped once against the back seat, and then he shifted around to lay his head on Molly's shoulder. She immediately started scratching him reassuringly behind the ear, though her own expression was far from comfortable. I gave the girl half of a smile and then got out of the car. Summer twilight was fading fast, and it was too hot to wear my duster. I had it on anyway, and I added the weight of the gray cloak of the wardens of the White Council to the duster. Under all that, I wore a white silk shirt and cargo pants of heavy black cotton, plus my hiking boots. Hat, I muttered. Spurs. Next time, I swear. Ramirez slid out of the beetle, grenades and gun and willow sword hanging from his belt, and staff gripped in his right hand. He paused to pull on a glove made out of heavy leather, overlaid with a layer of slender steel plates, each inscribed with pictoglyphs that looked Aztec or Olmec or something. That's new, 
I commented. He winked at me, and we checked our guns. My forty-four revolver went back into my left-hand duster pocket, his back into its sheath. You sure you don't want a grenade or two? he asked. I'm not comfortable with hand grenades, I said. So do yourself, he replied. How about you, Molly? He turned back to the car, hand on one of his grenades. The car was gone. The engine was still idling audibly. Ramirez let out a whistle and waved his staff into the space it had occupied until it clinked against metal. Hey, not a bad veil. Pretty damn good, in fact. She's got a gift, I said. Molly's voice came from nearby. Thanks. Ramirez gave the approximate space where my apprentice sat a big grin and a gallant, vaguely Spanish little bow. Molly let out a suppressed giggle. The car's engine cut out, and she said, Go on. I've got to keep compensating for the dust you're kicking up, and it's a pain. Eyes open, I told her. Use your head. You too, Molly said. Don't tell him to start new things now, Ramirez chided her. You'll just confuse him. I'm getting dumber by the minute, I confirmed. Ask anybody. From the unseen car, Mouse snorted out a breath. See? I said, and started walking toward the entrance to the estate. Ramirez kept up, but only by taking a skipping step every several paces. My legs are lots longer than his. After a hundred yards or so, he laughed. All right, you made your point. I grunted and slowed marginally. Ramirez looked back over his shoulder. Think she'll be all right? Tough to sneak up on Mouse, I said, even if they realize she's there. Pretty. A body like that? And talent, too. Ramirez stared back thoughtfully. She seeing anyone? Not since she drilled holes in her last boyfriend's psyche and drove him insane. Ramirez winced. Right. We fell silent and walked up to the gates to the estate, getting our game faces on along the way. Ramirez's natural expression was a cocksure smile, but when things got hairy, he went with a cool, arrogant look that left his eyes focused on nothing and everything at the same time. I really don't care what my game face looks like. Mine is all internal. I kept Anna's face and her serious eyes in mind as I tromped up to the gothic gate made of simulated wrought iron, but heavy enough to stop a charging SUV. I struck it three times with my staff and planted its end firmly onto the ground. The gate buzzed and began to open of its own accord. Halfway through, something near the hinges let out a whine and a puff of smoke, and it stopped moving. That you? I asked him. I took out the lock, too, he replied quietly, and the cameras that can see the gate, just in case. Ramirez doesn't have my raw power, but he uses what he has well. Nice, I told him. Didn't feel a thing. His grin flickered by. De nada. I'm the best. I stepped through the gate, keeping a wary eye out. The night was all but complete, and the woods were lovely, dark, and deep. Tires whispered on pavement. A light appeared in the trees overhead and resolved into headlights. A full-fledged limousine, a white rolls with silver accents, swept down the drive to the gate and purred to a halt twenty feet in front of us. Ramirez muttered under his breath. You want I should down, big fella, I said. Save ourselves the walk. Bah, he said. Some of us are young and healthy. 
The driver door opened and a man got out. I recognized him as one of Lara's personal bodyguards. He was a bit taller than average, leanly muscled, had a military haircut and sharp, wary eyes. He wore a sports jacket, khakis, and wasn't working to hide the shoulder rig he wore under the coat. He took a look at us, then passed us at the gate and the fence. Then he took a small radio from his pocket and started speaking into it. Dresden? he asked me. Yeah. Ramirez? The one and only, Carlos told him. You're armed, he said. Heavily, I replied. He grimaced, nodded, and said, Get in the car, please. Why? I asked him, oh so innocently. Ramirez gave me a sharp look, but said nothing. I was told to collect you, the bodyguard said. It isn't far to the house, I said. We can walk. Ms. Wraith asked me to assure you that on behalf of her father, you have her personal pledge of safe conduct as stipulated in the Accords. In that case, I said, Ms. Wraith can come tell me that her personal self. I'm sure she will be happy to, the bodyguard said. At the house, sir. I folded my arms and said, If she's too busy to move her pretty ass down here, why don't you go ask her if we can't come back tomorrow instead? There was a whirring sound, and one of the back windows of the roll slid down. I couldn't see much of anyone inside, but I heard a velvet-soft woman's laugh saunter out of the night. You see, George, I told you. The bodyguard grimaced and looked around. They've done something to the gate. It's open. You're exposed here, ma'am. If assassination was their intention, the woman replied, believe me when I say that Dresden could already have done it, and I feel confident that his companion, Mr. Ramirez, could have managed the same. Ramirez stiffened a little and muttered between clenched teeth. How does she know me? Ain't many people ride zombie dinosaurs and make regional commander in the wardens before they turn twenty-five, I replied. Betcha she's got files on most of the wardens still alive. And some of the trainees, agreed the woman's voice. George, if you please. The bodyguard gave us a flat, measuring look, and then opened the door of the car, one hand resting quite openly on the butt of the pistol hanging under one arm. The mistress of the white court stepped forth from the Rolls Royce. Lara is difficult to describe. I'd met her several times, and each meeting had carried a similar impact, a moment of stunned admiration and desire at her raw physical appeal that did not lessen with exposure. There was no one feature about her that I could have pointed out as particularly gorgeous. There was no one facet of her beauty that could be declared as utter perfection. Her appeal was something far greater than the sum of her parts, and none of those were less than heavenly. Like Thomas, she had dark, idly curling hair, so glossy that the highlights were very nearly a shade of blue. Her skin was one creamy, gently curving expanse of milk-white perfection, and if there were moles or birthmarks anywhere on her body, I couldn't see them. Her dark pink lips were a little large for her narrow-chinned face, but they didn't detract. They only gave her a look of lush overindulgence, of deliberate and wicked sensuality. It was her eyes, though, that were the real killers. They were large, oblique orbs of arsenic gray highlighted with flecks of periwinkle blue. More important, they were very alive eyes, alert, aware of others, 
shining with intelligence and humor. So much so, in fact, that if you weren't careful, you'd miss the smoldering demonic fires of sensuality in them, of a steady, predatory hunger. Beside me, Ramirez swallowed. I knew only because I could hear it. When Lara makes an entrance, no one looks away. She wore a white silk business suit, its skirt less than an inch too short to be considered dignified business wear, the heels of her white shoes just a tiny bit too high for propriety. It made it difficult not to stare at her legs. A lot of women with her coloring couldn't pull off a white outfit, but Lara made it look like a goddess's toga. She knew the effect she had when we looked at her, and her mouth curled into a satisfied little smile. She walked toward us slowly, one leg crossing the other at a deliberate pace, hips shifting slightly. The motion was... Awfully pretty. Sheer, sensual femininity gathered around her in a silent, unseen thundercloud, so thick that it could drown a man if he wasn't careful. After all, she had drowned her father in it, hadn't she? All is not gold that glitters, and how well I knew it. As delicious as she looked, as pants-rendingly gorgeously as she moved, she was capital D dangerous. More, she was a vampire a predator, one who fed on human beings to continue her very existence. Despite our past cooperation, I was still human, and she was still something that ate humans. If I acted like food, there would be an enormous part of her that wouldn't care about politics or advantage. It would just want to eat me. So I did my best to look bored as she approached and offered me her hand, palm down. I took her cold, Smooth, pretty, deliciously soft. Damn it, Harry, ignore your penis before it gets you killed. Fingers in mine, bent over them in a little formal bow, and released them without kissing her hand. If I had, I wasn't sure I wouldn't take a few nibbles just to test out the texture as long as I was there. As I rose, she met my eyes for a dangerous second and said, Sure you don't want to taste, Harry? A surge of raw lust that was, probably, not my own, flickered through my body. I smiled at her, gave her a little bow of my head, and made a small effort of will. The runes and sigils on my staff erupted into smoldering orange hellfire. Be polite, Lara. It would be a shame to get cinders and ashes all over those shoes. She tilted her head back and let out a bubbling, throaty laugh, then touched the side of my face with one hand. Subtle as always, she replied. She lowered her hand and ran her fingertips over the odd gray material of my warden's cloak. You've developed an eclectic taste in fashion. It's the same color, I said, on both sides. Ah, Lara said, and inclined her head slightly to me. I'd hardly respect you otherwise, I suppose. Still, should you ever desire a new wardrobe, she touched the fabric of my shirt lightly. You would look marvelous in white silk. Said the spider to the fly, I replied. Forget it. She smiled again, batted her lashes at me while my heart skipped a beat, and then slid on to Ramirez. She offered him her hand. You must be Warden Ramirez. This is the part where I got nervous. Ramirez loved women. Ramirez never shut up about women. 
Well, he never shut up about anything in general, but he'd go on and on about various conquests and feats of sexual athleticism and... A virgin? Lara blurted. Lara blurted. She turned her head to me, gray eyes several shades paler than they had been, and very wide. Really, Harry, I'm not sure what to say. Is he, uh, present? I folded my arms and regarded Lara steadily, but said nothing. This was Ramirez's moment to make a first impression, and if he didn't do it on his own, Lara would regard him as someone who couldn't protect himself. It would probably mark him as a target. Lara turned to walk a slow circle around Ramirez, inspecting him the way you might a flashy new sports car. She was of a height with him, but taller in the heels, and there was nothing but a languidly sensual confidence in the way she moved. A handsome young bantam, she murmured. She trailed a finger across the line of his shoulders as she moved behind him. Strong, young, a hero of the White Council, I've heard. She paused to touch a fingertip to the back of his hand and then shuddered. And power, too. Her eyes went a few shades brighter as she completed the tour. My goodness, I've recently fed, and still... Perhaps you'd care to ride with me back to the estate and let Dresden walk. I promise to entertain you until he arrives. I knew the look on Ramirez's face. It was the look of a young man who wants nothing so badly as to discard the complex things in life, like civilization, social mores, clothing, and speech, and see what happened next. Lara knew it, too. Her eyes glittered brightly, and her smile was serpentine, and she pressed closer. But Ramirez apparently knew about glittery gold, too. I didn't know he'd hidden a knife up his sleeve, but it appeared in his hand an instant before its tip pressed into the bottom of Lara's throat. I, he said very quietly, am not food. And he met her eyes. I hadn't seen a soul gaze from the outside before. It surprised me how simple and brief it looked when one wasn't being shaken to the core by it. Both of them stared, eyes widening, and then shuddered. Lara took a small step back from Ramirez, her breathing slightly quickened. I noticed because I'm a professional investigator. She could have been concealing a weapon in that décolletage. If you meant to dissuade me, Lara said a moment later, you haven't. Not you. Ramirez replied, lowering the knife. His voice was rough. It wasn't to dissuade you. Wise, she murmured, for one so young. I advise you, young wizard, not to hesitate so long to act should another approach you as I did. A virgin is extremely attractive to our kind. One such as you is rare these days. Give a less restrained member of the court an opportunity, as you did me, and they'll throw themselves on you in dozens which would reflect poorly on me. She turned back to me and said, Wizards, you have my pledge of safe conduct. I inclined my head to her and said, Thank you. Then I will await your company in the car. I nodded my head to her and Lara walked back to her bodyguard, who looked like he was fighting off a fit of apoplexy. I turned and eyed Ramirez. He turned bright red. Virgin? I asked him. 
He turned more red. Carlos? I asked. She's lying, he snapped. She's evil. She's really evil and lying. I rubbed at my mouth to keep anyone from seeing me grin. Hey, on nights like this, you take your laughs where you can get them. Okay, I said, not important. The hell it isn't, he spat. She's lying. I mean, I'm not, I'm... I nudged him with an elbow. Focus, Galahad. We've got a job to do. He exhaled with a growl. Right. You saw what was inside her? I asked. He shuddered. That pale thing. Her eyes. She was getting more turned on, and they kept looking more like its eyes. Yep, I said. It's a tip-off to how close they are to starting to take a bite of you. You handled it right. You think so? I couldn't resist jibing him just a little. Just think, if you'd messed it up, I said, as Lara slid into the car one long, perfect leg at a time, you'd be in the limo with Lara ripping your clothes off right now. Ramirez looked at the car and swallowed. Oh, yeah, close one. I've met several of the white court, I said. Lara's probably the smartest. She's the most civilized, progressive, adaptable. She's definitely the most dangerous. She didn't look that tough, Ramirez said, but he was frowning in thought as he said it. She's dangerous in a different way than most, I said, but I think her word is good. It is, Ramirez said firmly. I saw that much. It's one of the things that makes her dangerous, I said and headed for the limo. Stay cool. We walked over and I leaned down to see Lara in the back of the limo, seated on one of the dog cart-style seats, all poise and beauty and gorgeous gray eyes. She smiled at me as I looked in and crooked a finger. Step into my limo, said the spider to the fly. And we did. Chapter 36 the limo rolled right past the enormous stone house that was the chateau proper. It was bigger than a parking garage and covered with cornices and turrets and gargoyles, like some kind of neo-medieval castle. We're, uh, I noted, not stopping at the house. No, Lara said from the seat facing us. Even in the dark you could see the glow of her luminous skin. The conclave is being held in the deeps. Her eyes glittered at me. Less walking for everyone that way. I gave her a small smile and said, I like the house, the whole castle-looking thing. It's always nice to know you're living somewhere that could withstand a besieging army of bohemian mercenaries if it had to. Or American wizards, she replied smoothly. I gave her what I hoped was a wolfish smile, folded my arms, and watched the house go by. We turned down a little gravel lane, and drove another mile or so before the car slowed and came to a stop. Bodyguard George got out and opened the door for Lara, whose thigh brushed against mine as she got out, and whose perfume smelled good enough to scramble my brain for a good two or three seconds. Both I and Ramirez sat still for a second. That, I said, is an awfully lovely woman. I thought I should let you know, kid, in case your inexperience has blinded you to the fact. Lying, Ramirez stated, blushing. Evil. I snickered and slid out of the car to follow Lara and the three more bodyguards waiting for her into the woods beside the gravel lane. 
The last time I'd found the entrance to the deeps, I'd been stumbling through the woods, focused on a tracking spell and tripping over roots and hummocks in the old-growth forest. This time, there was a lighted path with a red carpet, no less, leading down between the trees. The lights were all of soft blues and greens, small lamps that, upon a closer glance, proved to be elegant little crystal cages containing tiny humanoid forms with wings. Fairies, tiny pixies, each surrounded by its own sphere of light, trapped and miserable, crouched in the cages. Between each cage knelt more prisoners, humans bound by nothing more than a single strand of white silk about their throats, tied to a peg driven into the earth in front of them. They weren't naked. Lara wouldn't have gone in for anything that overt. Instead, they each wore a white silk kimono, accented with strands of silver thread. Men and women, arrayed in a variety of ages, body types, hair colors. Every single one of them beautiful. Their eyes lowered as they knelt quietly. One of the young men sat shivering and was seemingly barely able to stay upright. His long, dark hair was marred with streaks of brittle white. His eyes were unfocused and he seemed totally unaware of anyone around him. His kimono was torn near the neck leaving a broad swath of muscled chest exposed. There were raking nail marks, deep enough to draw tiny trickles of blood all the way across one pectoral. There were repeated teeth marks deep in the slope of muscle between neck and shoulder, half a dozen sets of messy bruises and ugly little gashes. There were more nail marks, four side-by-side -side punctures rather than rakes on the other side of his neck. He was also obviously even painfully, aroused beneath the kimono. Lara paused beside him and rolled her eyes in irritation. <sighs> Madeline? Yes, ma'am, said one of the bodyguards. Oh, for hunger's sake, she sighed. Get him indoors before the conclave is over, or she'll finish him off on her way out. Yes, ma'am, he said, turned aside, and began speaking to nobody. I spotted a wire running to an earpiece. I kept walking down the long line of kneeling captives and trapped pixies and got angrier with every step. They're willing, Dresden, Lara said a few paces later. All of them. I'm sure they are, I said. Now. She laughed. <laughs> there is no shortage of mortals who long to kneel before another wizard. There never has been. We passed several more kneeling men and women who looked must and dazed, though none so badly as the first. We also walked past spaces where there was a peg in a strip of white cloth, but no person kneeling within. I'm sure they all knew that they might die by doing it, I said. She shrugged one shoulder. It happens at these meetings. Guests have no need to dispose of a body, since as hosts we are responsible for such necessities. As a result... Many of our visitors make no effort to control themselves. You're responsible, all right. I gripped my staff harder and kept my voice neutral. What about the little folk? They trespassed upon our land, she replied, her voice calm. Most would simply have killed them rather than pressing them into service. Yeah, you're all heart. Where there is life, there is hope, Dresden, Lara replied. My father's policies on such matters have changed of late. Death is gauche when it can be avoided. 
Alternative courses are far more profitable and agreeable to all involved. It is for precisely that reason that my father seeks to help create a peace between your folk and mine. I glanced aside at the shining eyes of a short-haired redhead in her early thirties. Absolutely lovely, her kimono still open from whatever had fed on her, the tips of her small breasts taut as she panted, the muscles of a lean stomach still trembling. Behind us, the thralls stretched out into the darkness. Ahead of us, they went on for a hundred yards or more. So many of them. I started to shudder. But the faces of the women the Scavis and his pretenders had murdered flickered through my mind, and I fought it down. Like hell was I going to let Lara see me look discomfited, no matter how sick the display of the White Court's seductive power made me feel. The path went on for another hundred yards through the woods and stopped at the mouth of a cave. It wasn't large or sinister or dramatic. It was simply a fissure in an almost flat stretch of ground at the base of a tree, with a hypnotic sway of firelight dancing somewhere below. There were guards outside, set back in the woods out of obvious sight. I spotted a couple of deer stands occupied by dark shapes. There were others standing silent sentinel. I assumed that there would be more guards I could not see. Lara turned to us. Gentlemen, she said, if you will wait here for a moment, I will send someone when the White King is ready to receive you. I nodded once, settled my staff on the ground, and leaned on it a little, saying nothing. Ramirez took his cue from me. Lara gave me a level look. Then she turned and descended into the deeps, flawlessly graceful despite her high heels. You have met her before, Ramirez noted quietly. Yeah. Where? Set of a porn movie. She was acting. He stared at me for a second, then shrugged in acceptance and said, What were you doing? Stuntman, I replied. Huh, he said. I'd been hired by the producer to find out why people involved with the movie were being killed. Did you? Yeah. So, did you and she? No, I said. You can tell from how I'm breathing and possessed of my own will. I nodded toward the entrance of the cave, where a shadow briefly darkened the firelight from below. Someone's coming. A young woman in an especially fine white kimono, heavily embroidered with silver thread, emerged from the fissure. I thought she was blonde for a second, but that was because of the light. As she approached us with slow, quiet steps, her hair turned blue, then green, passing through the light of the fairy lamps. Her hip-length hair was pure white. She was lovely, very nearly as much so as Lara but there was none of the predatory sense of hunger in her that had come to associate with the white court. She was slim and sweetly shaped and looked quite frail and vulnerable. It took me a second to recognize her. Justine? I asked. She gave me a little smile. It was oddly disconnected, as if her dark eyes were focused on something other than what she smiled at, and she never looked directly at me. She spoke. Her words flecked with little pauses and emphasis on odd syllables, as if she were speaking a foreign language in which she had merely technical proficiency. It's Harry Dresden. Hello, Harry. 
You look dashing this evening. Justine, I said, accepting her hand as she offered it to me. I bowed over it. You look ambulatory. She gave me a shy smile and spoke in a dreamy sing-song. I'm healing. One day I'll be all better and go back to my lord. Her fingers, though, tightened hard on mine as she spoke, a quick and measured sequence to the rhythm of shave and a haircut. I blinked for a second and then squeezed back on the beat for six bits. I'm sure any man would be delighted to see you. She blushed daintily and bowed to us. So kind, my lord. Would you accompany me, please? We did. Justine led us down into the fissure, which proved to be a smooth-walled descent into the earth. From there our way forward entered a torch-lit tunnel, its walls also polished smooth, and from far below us came the music of echoing voices and sounds dancing through the stone, being subtly changed and altered by the acoustics as they came up from below. It was a long, winding descent down, though the tunnel was wide and the footing steady. I remembered the nightmarish flight from the deeps the last time I'd been there, while Murphy and I dragged my half-dead half-brother all the way up before we'd been consumed in a storm of psychic slavery Lara was whipping up to take control of her father and through him the white court. It had been a close one. Justine stopped about two-thirds of the way down at a spot that had been marked with a bit of chalk on the floor. Here, she said in a quiet but not at all dreamy voice, we can't be overheard from here. What's going on? I demanded. How are you walking around like this? It doesn't matter right now, Justine said. I'm better. You aren't crazy, are you? I demanded. You nearly scratched my eyes out that one time. She shook her head with a frustrated little motion. Medication. It isn't... Look, I'm all right for now. I need you to listen to me. Fine, I said. Lara wished me to tell you what to expect, Justine said, dark eyes intent. Right now, Lord Scavis is below, calling for an end to any plans for negotiations with the Council, citing the work of his son as an illustration of the profit of continuing hostilities. His son? I said. Justine grimaced and nodded. The agent you slew was the heir apparent of House Scavis. Mouse might have been the one to do the actual killing, but the Accords regarded him as a mere weapon, like a gun. I was the one who had pulled the trigger. Who's in charge of Malvora? Lady Cesarina Malvora, Justine said, giving me a smile of approval whose son Vittorio will be quite insulted by Lord Scavis's lies about all the hard work he and Madrigal Wraith did. I nodded. When does Lara want me to make my entrance? She told me that you would know best, Justine said. Right, I said. Take me to where I can hear them talking, then. That's going to be a problem, Justine said. They're speaking ancient Etruscan. I can follow enough of it to give you an idea what— It isn't a problem, I said. Is it? I thought, toward Lashiel's shadow. Naturally not, my host, came the ghostly reply. Groovy, I thought. Thanks, Lash. A startled second passed. Then she replied, You are welcome. Just get me to where I can hear them, I told Justine. This way, she replied at once.
and hurried on down the passage, stopping not twenty feet shy of the main cavern. Even so close, I could see very little of the cavern beyond, though I could hear voices raised in speech that sounded strange and sibilant in my ears and English in my head. The very heart of the matter, a rolling basso voice orated, that the mortal freaks and their ilk stand on the brink of destruction. Now is the time to tighten our grip and neuter the kind once and for all. Lord Scavis, I presumed. A strong and lazily confident baritone answered the speaker, and I recognized the voice of the remains of the creature who had killed my mother at once. My dear Scavis, answered Lord Wraith, the White King, I can hardly say that I find the notion of a neutered humanity entirely appealing. There was a round of silvery laughter, men and women alike. It rippled through the air and brushed against me like an idly ardent lover. I stood fast until it had gone by. Ramirez had to rest a hand on the wall to keep his balance. Justine swayed like a reed, her eyes fluttering shut and then opening again. Scavis's deep voice resumed. Your personal amusements and preferences aside, my king, the freak's biggest weakness has always been the length of time it took them to develop their skills to the most formidable levels. For the first time in history, we have degraded or neutralized their many advantages altogether, partly due to the fortunes of war and partly thanks to the resourcefulness of the kind in developing their arts in travel and communication. The House of Scavis has proven that we stand holding an unprecedented opportunity to crush the freaks and bring the kind under control at last. Only a fool would allow it to slip between his impotent fingers, my king. Only a fool, came a strident woman's voice, would make such a pathetic claim. The crown, Wraith interjected, recognizes Cesarina, the Lady Malvora. Thank you, my king, Lady Malvora said. While I cannot help but admire my Lord Scavis's audacity, I fear that I have no choice but to cut short his attempt to steal glory not his own from the honorable house of Malvora. Wraith's voice remained amused. This should be interesting. By all means, elaborate, dear Cesarina. Thank you, my king. My son, Vittorio, was on the scene and will explain. A male voice, flat and a little nasal, spoke up, and I recognized Grey Cloak's accent at once. My lord, the deaths inflicted upon the freakishly blooded kine indeed happened as Lord Scavis describes. But in fact, it was no agent of his house who accomplished this deed. If, as he claims, his son accomplished it, then where is he? Why has he not come forward to bear testimony in person? The words fell on what I could only describe as a glowering silence. If Lord Scavis was anything like the rest of the whites I'd met, Vittorio needed to bury him fast, or spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder. Then who did accomplish this fell act of warfare? Wraith asked, his tone mild. Vittorio spoke again, and I could just imagine the way his chest must have puffed out. 
I did, my king, with the assistance of Madrigal of the House of Wraith. Wraith's voice gained an edge of anger. This, despite the fact that a cessation of hostilities has been declared pending the discussion of an armistice. What is done is done, my king, Lady Malvora interjected. My dear friend Lord Scavis was correct in this fact. The freaks are weak. Now is the time to finish them, now and forever, not to allow them time to regain their feet. Despite the fact that the White King thinks otherwise, I could hear Lady Malvora's smile. Many things change, O oh King. There was a booming sound, maybe a fist slamming down onto the arm of a throne. This does not. You have violated my commands and undermined my policies. That is treason, Cesarina. Is it, O oh King? Lady Malvora shot back. Or is it treason to our very blood to show mercy to an enemy who is upon the brink of defeat? I would be willing to forgive excessive zeal, Cesarina, Wraith snarled. I am less inclined to tolerate the stupidity behind this mindless provocation. Cold, mocking laughter fell on a sudden dead silence. Stupidity? In what way, O oh weak and aged king? In what way are the deaths of the kind anything but sweetness to the senses, balm to the hunger? The quality of her voice changed, as if she changed her facing in the cavern. I could imagine her turning to address the audience, scorn ringing in her tone. We are strong and the strong do as they wish. Who shall call us to task for it, O king, you? If that wasn't a straight line, my name isn't Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden. I lifted my staff and slammed it down on the floor, forcing an effort of will through it to focus the energy of the blow into a far smaller area than the end of the staff. It struck the stone floor, shattering a chunk the size of a big dinner platter with a detonation almost indistinguishable from thunder. Another effort of will sent a rolling wave of silent fire, no more than five or six inches high, down the tunnel floor in a red carpet of my very own. I strode down it, Ramirez beside me, the fire rolling back away from our feet as we went, boots striking the stone together. We entered the cavern and found it packed with pale and startled beings, the entire place a wash of beautiful faces and gorgeous wardrobes, except for twenty feet around the entrance, where everyone had hurried away from the blazing herald of our presence. I ignored everything, scanning the room until I found Grey Cloak, a.k.a. Vittorio Malvora, standing next to Madrigal Wraith, not thirty feet away. The murdering bastards were staring at us, mouths open in shock. Vittorio Malvora, I called, my voice ringing with wrath in the echoing cavern. Madrigal Wraith, I am Harry Dresden, Warden of the White Council of Wizards. Under the Unsealy Accords, I accuse you of murder in a time of peace, and challenge you, here and now, before these witnesses, 
to trial by combat. I slammed my staff down again in another shock of thunder, and hellfire flooded the runes of the staff. To the death! Utter silence fell on the deeps. Damn, there ain't nothing like a good entrance. Chapter 37 Empty night, Madrigal swore in English, his eyes wide. This isn't happening. I showed him my teeth and replied quietly in the same tongue. Time to pay the piper, prick. Vito Malvora turned his head to look over his shoulder at a tiny woman, no more than five feet tall, dressed in a white gown, more like a toga than anything else. She was curved like the Greek goddesses the gown made her resemble. Her face was a stark, frozen mask. She turned, eyes the color of chrome, toward me, and wine-dark lips peeled back from very white teeth. There was an immediate uproar from the vampires, a sudden chorus of shouts of protest and anger. If I'd been in a less defiant mood, it probably would have scared the crap out of me. As it was, I simply shifted my stance, turning slightly to my left, while Ramirez did the same in the opposite direction, so that we stood back to back. There wasn't much else to do but prepare to fight in the event that someone decided to kick off a good old-fashioned wizard smashing for the evening's group activity. That gave me a moment to look around the cavern. It was built on the scale of Parisian cathedrals, with an enormously high, arched ceiling that vanished into shadow far overhead. The floor and walls were of living stone, smooth and gray, shot through here and there with strands of green, dark red, and cobalt blue. Everything was rounded and smooth, not a jagged edge or sharp corner in sight. The decor had changed a bit since I was there last. There were soft amber, orange, and scarlet lights splashing onto the walls of the cavern, and the lamps they came from had to have been automated because they moved slightly, mixing color, making all the shadows twitch, and generally giving the overall impression of crude firelight without surrendering any of the clarity of electric lighting. Furniture had been arranged in three large groupings with a large open space in the center of the floor, and they were occupied by what I could only presume were the leading members of the three major houses, somewhere near a hundred vampires in all. Servants, dressed in the same kind of more heavily embroidered kimono Justine had been wearing, hovered at the walls, bearing trays of drinks and food and so on. The floor rose in a series of inch-high ripples toward the far side of the chamber, where the white king sat looking down upon his court. Wraith's throne was an enormous chair of bone-white stone. Its back flared out like the hood of a cobra, spreading out into an enormous crest decorated with all manner of eye-twisting carvings, everything from rather spidery Celtic-style designs to bas-relief scenes of beings I could not easily identify engaged in activities I had no desire to contemplate. A thin sheet of fine mist fell behind the throne, the light playing delicately through it, sending ribbons and streams of color and refracted rainbows dancing around the throne. Behind that veil of obscuring mist, the floor abruptly ended, opening up into a yawning abyss that dropped into the bowels of the earth and, for all I knew, all the way through its intestinal tract.
the white king sat upon the throne. Thomas favored his father heavily, and at first glance, Lord Wraith could have been Thomas. He had the same strong, appealing features, the same glossy dark hair, the same lean build. He looked little older than Thomas, but his face was very different. It was the eyes, I think. They were stained, somehow, with contempt and calculation and a serpentine dispassion. The White King wore a splendid outfit of white silk, something somewhere between Napoleonic finery and Chinese imperial garb. Silver and gold thread and sapphires flickered over the whole of his outfit, and a circlet of glittering silver stood out starkly against his raven hair. Around the throne stood five women, every one of them a vampire, in less elaborate and more feminine versions of his own regalia. Lara was one of them, and not the prettiest, though they all bore her a strong likeness. Wraith's daughters, I supposed, each beautiful enough to haunt a lifetime of dreams, each deadly enough to kill an army of fools who sought to make such a fantasy come true. The noise continued to rise all around us, and I could feel Ramirez's shoulders tightening and sense the power he had begun to gather. Wraith rose from his throne with lazy magnificence and roared, Silence! I thought my speaking voice had been loud, but Wraith's shook small stones loose from the unseeing ceiling of the cavern far overhead, and the whole place went dead still. Lady Malvora wasn't having any intimidation, though. She strode into the open space before the throne, maybe ten feet from Ramirez and me, and faced the White King. Ridiculous, she snapped. We are not in a time of peace with the White Council. A state of war has been ongoing for years. The victims were not members of the Council, I said, and gave her a sweet smile. And they are not signatories to the Accords. Lady Malvora snapped. Given their status as members of the magical community, they are, however, within the purview of the White Council's legitimate political concerns, and as such are subject to the stipulations for protection and defense found within the Accords. I am well within my rights to act as their champion. Lady Malvora stared daggers at me. Sophistry! I smiled at her. That is, of course, for your king to decide. Lady Malvora's glare became even more heated, but she turned her gaze from me to the white throne. Wraith sat down again, slowly, carefully fussy with his sleeves, his eyes alight with pure pleasure. Now, now, dear Cesarina, moments ago you were claiming credit for dealing what could prove a mortal blow to the freaks, at least in the long term. Just because said freaks are here to object, as is their right under the Accords, you can hardly claim that they have no vested interest in trying to stop you. Comprehension dawned on Lady Malvora's lovely face. Her voice lowered to a pitch that couldn't have carried much farther than myself, and maybe to Wraith's own enhanced senses. You snake! You poisonous snake! Wraith gave her a chill smile and addressed the assembly. We find that we have little choice but to acknowledge the validity of the freak's right of challenge.
Under our agreement in the Accords, then, we must abide by its terms and permit the trial to proceed. Wraith rolled a droll hand at Vito and Madrigal. Unless, of course, our war heroes here lack the courage to withstand this utterly predictable response to their course of action. They are, of course, free to decline the challenge, should they feel themselves unable to face the consequences of their deeds. Silence fell again, almost viciously anticipatory. The weight of the attention of the white court fell squarely on Vito and Madrigal, and they froze the way birds will before a snake, remaining carefully motionless. This was the ticklish part. If the duo declined the trial by combat, Wraith would have to pay the council a were-guild for the dead, and that would be that. Of course, doing so would be a public admission of defeat, and would effectively neuter any influence they had in the White Court, and by extension would weaken Lady Malvora's position. Not so much because they declined to fight, as because they would have been outmaneuvered and forced to flee a confrontation. Of course, being proven slow and incompetent in front of a hundred ruthless predators, be they ever so well-dressed, would probably prove lethal itself in the long run. Either way, Lady Malvora's attempted influence coup would be finished. The bold and daring plan would have been proven overt and liable to attract far too much attention, both of which were simply not of value within the vampire's collective character. As a result, the White King, not Lady Malvora, would determine the course of the White Court's policy. Lady Malvora's only way out was through a victory in the trial, and I was counting on it. I wanted Vito and Madrigal to fight. Weregild wasn't good enough to atone for what these creatures had done to far too many innocent women. I wanted to give these monsters an object lesson. Madrigal turned to Vito and spoke in a quiet hiss. I half-closed my eyes and listened in on the conversation. No, Madrigal said, again in English. No way. He's a stupid thug, but this is exactly what he does best. Vito and Lady Malvora traded a long stare. Then Vito turned to Madrigal and said, You were the imbecile who set out to attract his attention and got him involved. We fight. Like hell we fight, Madrigal snarled. Empty knight Ortega couldn't take him in a straight fight. Don't act like such a kind, Madrigal, Vito replied. That was a duel of wills. A trial by combat allows us any weapons or tactics we wish. Have fun. I won't be one of the people fighting him. Yes, you will, Vito replied. You can face the wizard, or you can face dear Auntie Cesarina. Madrigal froze again, staring at Vito. I promise you that even if he burns you to death, it will be swift and painless by comparison. Decide, Madrigal. You are with Malvora or against us. Madrigal swallowed and closed his eyes. Son of a bitch. Vito Malvora's mouth widened into a smile, and he turned to address the White King, his language shifting back to Etruscan or whatever. We deny the freak's baseless accusation, 
and accept his challenge, of course, my king. We will prove the injustice of it upon his body. Were weapons, came Madrigal's unsteady voice. Lashiel's translation was flawlessly smooth, but it wasn't hard to extrapolate that Madrigal's Etruscan was about as bad as my Latin. Weapons, for our own, we must have to fight. To get them, we must send slaves for to find them. Wraith settled back in his throne and folded his arms. I find this an only reasonable request. Dresden? No objection, I told him. Wraith nodded once and clapped his hands. Music, then, while we wait, and another round of wine. Lady Malvora snarled, turned on a heel, and stalked back into one of the groups of furniture, where she became the immediate center of an intent conference. Musicians struck up from somewhere nearby, hidden behind a screen, a chamber orchestra, and a pretty good one. Vivaldi, maybe? I'm weaker on smaller-scale music than I am on symphonies. An excited buzz of voices rose up as servants began circulating with silver trays and crystal flute glasses. Ramirez gave the chamber a somewhat disbelieving stare and then shook his head. This is a nuthouse. Cave, I said. Nut cave. What the hell is going on? Right. Ramirez didn't have his own photocopy of a demon's personality to translate ancient Etruscan. So I summed up the conversation and the players and gave him the best quotes. What's this freak stuff? Ramirez demanded in a low, outraged tone. I think it's a perspective thing, I said. They call humans kind, deer, herd animals. Wizards are deer who can call down the lightning and whip up firestorms. From that perspective, we're fairly freakish. So we're going to kick their asses now, right? That's the plan. Incoming, Ramirez said, stiffening. Lara Wraith approached us, demure in her white formal getup, bearing a silver tray with drinks upon it. She inclined her head to us, her gray eyes pale and shining. Honored guests, would you care for wine? Nah, I said, I'm driving. Lara's lips twitched. I had no idea how she had switched into the complex kimono so quickly. Chalk it up to the same sexy vampire powers that had once let her shoot a layer of skin off my ear while standing on gravel in stiletto heels. Poof, business suit. Whoosh, whoosh, silk negligee. I shook my head a little and got my thoughts under control. Adrenaline can make me a little silly. Lara turned to Carlos and said, May I offer you a taste of something sweet, Bantam? Well, he said, as long as you're offering stuff, how about a little assurance that somebody isn't going to shoot us in the back for fun once we're stomping on Beavis and Butthead over there? Lara arched a brow. Beavis and... I would have gone with Heckle and Jekyll, I told him. Gentlemen, she said, please be assured that the White Throne wishes nothing more than for you to prevail and humiliate its foes. I am sure that my father will react most harshly to any violation of the Accords. Okay, Ramirez said, drawing the word out. He nodded toward the Malvoran contingent, still huddled around Cesarina. So what's stopping Il Duca there from taking a whack at you and the king and everybody? 
If she offs you, she gets to kill us, take over the organization, and just do whatever she likes. Lara looked at him, and her expression twisted with distaste, to the point that a little shudder actually flickered along her body, which I noticed because I am a trained observer of body language, and not because of the way the kimono was perfectly outlining one of her thighs. You don't understand, she shook her head, holding her mouth, as if she'd unexpectedly bitten into a lemon. Dresden, can you explain it to him? The white court vamps can be violent, I said quietly. Savage, even. But that isn't their preferred mode of operation. You're worried that Malvora is going to come smashing in here like a big old grizzly bear and kill anything in her way. But they aren't like grizzly bears. They're more like mountain lions. They prefer not to be seen acting at all. When they do attack, they're going after a victim, not seeking an opponent. They'll try to isolate them, hit them from behind, preferably destroy them before they even know that they're being attacked. If Lady Malvora threw down right now, it'd be a stand-up fight. They hate those. They won't do them unless there's no alternative. Oh, Ramirez said. Thank you, Lara told me. Of course, I said. There's been some uncharacteristic behavior going around lately. Lara tilted her head at me, frowning. Oh, come on, I said. You think it's a little odd the fairies didn't immediately stomp all over the Red Court when they violated unseelie territory a couple of years back? Don't tell me you're trapping the little fairies because it's cheaper than getting those paper party lanterns. Lara narrowed her eyes at me. You're testing their reaction, I said, giving a minor but deliberate insult and seeing what happens. Her lips turned up very, very slowly. Are you sure you're quite determined to remain attached to that sad little clubhouse of old men? Why, do you take care of your own? I asked. In a great many senses, wizard, she promised. The way you took care of Thomas? I asked. Her smile turned brittle. Pride goeth, Lara, I said. Each is entitled to his opinion, she glanced up and said. The runners have returned with your foe's weaponry. Good hunting, gentlemen. She bowed to us again, her expression a mask, and drifted away back toward her place behind the throne. The music came to an end, and it seemed to be a signal to the vampires. They withdrew from the center of the chamber to stand on either side, leaving the long axis of the cavern open, the entrance upon one end, the white throne upon the other. Last of all, the white king himself rose and descended from the enormous throne to move to one side of the cavern. On the right side of the room were all the members of Malvora and Scavis, and on the left gathered the members of House Wraith. The Scavis and Malvora weren't actually standing together, but there was a sense of hungry anticipation in the air. Vampires standing on both sidelines, Ramirez said. Guess no one wants to catch a stray lightning bolt. Or bullet, I muttered. But it won't help them much if things get confused and turned around once the fight starts. Wraith snapped a finger, and thralls in their white kimonos began filing into the room. They swayed more than walked, filing down the sidelines of the dueling ground 
and then simply knelt down in a pair of double ranks in front of the vampires on either side of the chamber. They formed, taken together, a wall like that around a hockey arena, but one made of living human flesh. Crap. Any form of mayhem that spread to the sidelines was going to run smack into human victims. And my own powers in a fight were not exactly surgical instruments. Torrents of flame, blasts of force, and impenetrable bastions of will were sort of my thing. You will note, however, how seldom words like torrent, blast, and bastion get used in conjunction with terms that denote delicacy and precision. Ramirez was going to be better off than I was in that regard. His combat skills ran more to speed and accuracy versus my own preference for massive destruction, but they were no less deadly in their own way. Carlos looked back and forth, then said to me, They're going to try to stay on our flanks. Use those people in the background to keep us from cutting loose. I know I never went to warden combat school, I told him, but I feel I should remind you that this is not my first time. Ramirez grimaced at me. You just aren't going to let that go, are you? I showed him my teeth. So I hit them fast and hard while you keep them off me. If they flank, you're on offense while I keep them off of you. Try to maneuver them out to where I'll have a clean shot. Ramirez scowled, and his voice came out with more than the usual heat. Yes, thank you, Harry. You want to tie my shoes for me before we start? Whoa, what's that? I asked him. Oh, come on, man, Ramirez said quietly, his voice tight and angry. You are lying to me. You're lying to the council. I stared at him. I'm not an idiot, man, Ramirez said, his expression neutral. You can barely get by in Latin, but you speak ghoul? Ancient Etruscan? There's more going on here than a duel and internal politics, Dresden. You're involved with these things. More than you should be. You know them too well. Which is a really fucking disturbing thing to realize, considering we're talking about a race of mind-benders. Vito and Madrigal emerged from the Malvoran contingent. Vito bore a long rapier at his side, and there were a number of throwing knives on his belt, as well as a heavy pistol in a holster. Madrigal, meanwhile, carried a spear with a seven-foot haft, and his arms were wrapped with two long strips of black cloth covered in vaguely oriental characters in metallic red thread. I'd have guessed that they were constructs of some kind, even before I felt the ripple of magical energy in them as he walked with Vito to stand facing us from thirty feet away. Carlos, I said, this is one hell of a time to start having doubts about my loyalty. Damn it, Harry, he said, I'm not backing out on you. It's too late for that, even if I wanted to. But this whole thing feels more and more like a setup every second. I couldn't argue with him there. I was pretty sure it was. I looked back and forth down the lengths of the ranks of vampires, all of whom watched in total silence now, gray eyes bright, edging over into metallic silver with their rising hunger. The formalities of the accords had kept us alive and largely unmolested here amidst the monsters. But if we deviated from the conventions, we'd never live to see the surface again. We were in the same position as Madrigal and Vito, really. Win or die.
And I didn't delude myself for one single second that this was going to be as simple as a stand-up fight. Part of the nature of the white court was treachery as well. It was only a matter of time and timing before one of them turned on us, and if we weren't ready when it happened, we'd either be dead or getting fitted for our own white robes. Vito and Madrigal squared off against us, hands on their weapons. I took a deep breath and faced them. Beside me, Ramirez did the same. Lord Wraith reached up his sleeve and withdrew a handkerchief of red silk. He offered it to Lara, who took it and walked slowly down the lines of kneeling thralls. She stopped at the sidelines midway between us and slowly lifted the red silk. Gentlemen, she said. Stand ready. Let no weapon of any kind be drawn until this cloth reaches the earth. My heart started pounding faster, and I drew my duster back enough to put a hand near the handle of my blasting rod. Lara flicked the scarlet silk cloth into the air, and it began to fall. Ramirez was right. This was a trap. I had done everything I could to prepare for it but the bottom line was that I was not sure what was going to happen. But like the man said, it was too late to back out now. The cloth hit the floor and my hand blurred for my blasting rod as the duel began. Chapter 38 Some people are faster than others. I'm fast, always have been, especially for a man my size. But this duel had gotten off to a fair start and no merely mortal hand is faster than a vampire's. Vito Malvora's gun cleared its holster before my fingers had tightened on the blasting rod's handle. The weapon resembled a fairly standard Model 1911, but it had an extension to the usual ammunition clip sticking out of the handle, and it spat a spray of bullets in the voice of a yowling buzzsaw. Some vampires are faster than others. Vito was fast. He'd drawn and fired more swiftly than I'd ever seen Thomas move, more swiftly than I'd seen Lara shoot. But bodies, even nigh-immortal vampire bodies, are made of flesh and blood and have mass and inertia. No hand, not even a vampire's, is swifter than thought. Ramirez already had his power held ready when the scarlet cloth hit the ground, and in that instant he hissed a single syllable under his breath, and flipped his left hand palm up. That bizarre glove he wore flashed and let out a rattling buzz of furious sound. A sudden gelatinous cloud of green light interposed itself between us and the vampires before even Vito could fire. The bullets struck against that gooey cloud, sending watery ripple patterns racing across it, plowing a widening furrow through the semi-solid mass. There was a hissing sound, a sharp pain high up on my left cheek, and then I was slapped across the chest by a spray of tiny, dark particles the size of grains of sand. Ramirez's shield was nothing like my own. I used raw force to create my own steel-hard barrier. Ramirez's spell was based on principles of entropy and water magic, and focused on disrupting, shattering, and dispersing any objects trying to pass through it, turning their own energy against them. Even magic must do business with physics, and Carlos couldn't simply make the energy the bullets carried go away. Instead, the spell reduced their force by shattering the bullets with their own momentum, breaking them into zillions of tiny pieces 
spreading them out so that their individual impact energy would be negligible. When the dispersed cloud of leaden sand struck me, it was unpleasant and uncomfortable, but it had lost so much power that it wouldn't have gotten through an ordinary leather coat or even a thick shirt, much less my spell-laced duster. If I'd had time to breathe a sigh of relief, I would have. I didn't. Every bit of focus I had was bent on slamming a surge of energy and will through my blasting rod, even before I had the business end lifted all the way up. Fuego! I cried. A column of fire as thick as a telephone pole flew from the tip of the rod, struck the ground twenty feet away, and then whipped across the floor toward Vito as I finished lifting my weapon. He was fast. He barely had time to register that his bullets had missed their target before the fire came for him, but he flung himself to one side in a desperate dive. As he went, he gained enough of an angle to get him just around the edge of Ramirez's highly visible shield, and the vampire's hand flickered to his belt to whip one of those knives at me in a side-armed throw. It would have been a waste of time for any human. Thrown knives aren't terribly good killing weapons to begin with. I mean, in the movies and TV, every time someone throws a knife, it kills somebody. Wham! It slams to the hilt in their chest, right into the heart, or clerk! It sinks into their throat and they die instantly. Real knives don't generally kill you unless the thrower gets abnormally lucky. Real knives, if they hit with the pointy part at all, generally only inflict a survivable, if very distracting, injury. Of course, when real people throw real knives, they don't fling them at a couple of hundred miles an hour. Most of them haven't had centuries to practice, either. That knife flickered as it came, and if I hadn't hunched up my shoulder and tucked my face down behind it, the knife might have found the flesh of my neck and killed me. Instead, its tip struck the duster's mantle at an oblique angle, and the weapon skittered off the spell-armored coat and tumbled off on a wobbly arc. Vito landed in a tumble, teeth clenched over a scream of pain. His left leg was on fire from the knee down, but he was smart. He didn't stop, drop, and roll. In fact, he didn't stop at all, and it was the only thing that kept my second blast from immolating him. The lance of flame missed him by a foot and momentarily smashed the curtain of falling water behind the white throne into steam. Beside me, I heard Ramirez fling out one of those green blasts. Harry! Ramirez screamed. I turned my head in time to see Madrigal coming at us from nearly straight ahead, his spear in hand. Ramirez hurled a second shaft of green light at him, but it splashed against an unseen barrier a foot away from his body. Glitters of golden light ran up and down the symbols on the cloth strips wrapped around his arms. I understood then. Ramirez's second shot had been a demonstration. He's warded! Ramirez snarled. Drop back, I snapped, as Vito came streaking toward me down the other sideline. He was reloading the gun as he came, dropping the old magazine, slapping a new one in. I lifted my shield bracelet, readying it, then hesitated for a fraction of a second to get the timing just right, gauging angles of incidence and refraction. Vito's hand came up and the gun snarled again. I brought the shield up at the last second a flat plane perpendicular to the floor, and Ramirez took a hopping step back just in time to get behind the shield as it formed. Twenty or thirty bullets ricocheted off the invisible barrier in a shower of sparks, 
and spalled more or less toward Madrigal Wraith and his magical protection. The nifty armbands apparently weren't made to stop physical projectiles, because one of the bouncing bullets ripped through the outside of his thigh with an ugly explosion of torn cloth and a misty burst of pale blood. He screamed and faltered, throwing out one hand to catch his balance before he could hit the floor. Drop it! Ramirez shouted. His hand blurred toward his pistol, and he drew it before Madrigal could get moving again. I pivoted the shield to clear Ramirez, taking a couple of steps forward to wall Vito away from Carlos's flank, and transmuted the far surface of the shield into a reflective mirror. Ramirez's gun began to roar beside me, measured shots that were actually aimed, as opposed to the rapid crack-crack-crack of panic fire. Vito reacted to the gunfire and the suddenly appearing mirrored wall ten feet long and eight feet high with instant violence. He flung the heavy handgun at a suddenly appearing and swift-moving target before he could realize that it was his own reflection. The gun had its slide locked open, and when it hit the shield at the speed he threw it, something in the assembly slipped and it bounced off in several pieces. Vito slowed down for a step, eyes widening, and I didn't blame him one bit. It would have made me blink for a second if my opponent had suddenly changed open air into the back wall of a dance studio. Then he accelerated again and did something I wasn't ready for. He bounded straight up into the air, a good ten or twelve feet, arching over the top of my shield in an instant and flinging knives with each hand as he came. I threw up my right arm, trying to interpose it with the oncoming knife as far out from my body as I could. The knife hit flat which was fine, where the leather of my duster's sleeve covered my arm. The handle of the knife, though, hit my naked wrist, and my right hand abruptly went numb. I heard the other knife whisper as it tumbled through the air beside me, missing me. Madre de Dios! Carlos screamed. The blasting rod tumbled from my useless fingers. I cursed and flung myself to one side as Vito landed on the inside of my shield, his sword whipping from its scabbard, in a horizontal slash at my throat. My tactical thinking had been limited to two dimensions, maybe reinforced by the mockery of the sports field we fought on. The second knife had missed me because Vito hadn't been aiming for me. Its handle now protruded from Ramirez's right calf. I couldn't move my fingers correctly, which precluded the use of the energy rings on my right hand. I dropped the shield. All it would do, with him already so close, was slow down my movement. I'd have to reform it between me and him the second I got a chance, which he didn't seem inclined to give me. He sent a lightning-quick thrust at my guts, and I had to dance back a pair of steps to buy myself enough time to parry it with a sweep of the staff in my left hand. There was no way I could fence with Vito. Even if he didn't totally outclass me physically, fighting one-armed with a staff against a competent fighter with a rapier is not a winning proposition. If I tried it, I'd be backing away from him in circles until I tripped, he slashed a few of my fingers off and finished me, or else forced me away from Ramirez long enough to double-team him and kill him. I couldn't sling magic at him either. His back was to the crowd of vampires and the human victims shielding them, and he was damned fast. Anything I could throw that would have hurt him could miss, and if it missed, it'd kill anyone who got in the way. I couldn't take my eyes off Vito for a second. I had to hope that Ramirez was holding his own against Madrigal. I had to buy time and distance. I slammed Will and Hellfire through my staff, snarled, 
Fozari! And released it in a broad wave that lashed out into absolutely everything in front of me. The wave of force caught Vito and flung him from his feet. He hit a brawny thrall with a neatly clipped goatee, and then the wave caught up and struck the man too, as well as the folk on either side of him. They were flung back into the second row of kneeling thralls, and they, in turn, were all bowled back into the crowd of vampires behind them, to a general scream of surprise and dismay. It hadn't been a lot of force by the time it got to the thralls, not all spread out like that. I could have delivered tackles that hit harder. It had been enough, though, to tangle Vito, whose leg was still on fire, by the way, in a pile of courtiers and thralls. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, I hollered, to Bowling for Vampires. To my intense discomfort, a round of laughs went up from the wraith contingent, and I got a smattering of applause. I raised my shield again into a shimmering half-dome of glittering silver and blue light this time, and twisted my head around to look for Ramirez. I turned in time to see Madrigal, bleeding from several gunshot wounds, rush forward, spear held high. Ramirez had fallen to one knee, his wounded leg unable to support his weight, and as I watched, he dropped the Desert Eagle and gathered another bolt of disintegrating emerald force in his right hand. Madrigal laughed at him, the sound silvery and scornful, and now that he was in motion, I could see the chromium glitter of the demonic hunger in his eyes. His protective armbands flickered brightly as he rushed forward. Ramirez! I screamed. Madrigal raised the spear. Ramirez flung the gathered energy in a last useless strike that missed Madrigal entirely and splashed on the stone at his feet. A section of stone the size of a big bathtub glowed green for a split second, then shattered into dust so fine that its individual grains would be almost invisible to the naked eye. Just as my average preparation session for a fight does not involve considering 12-foot kung fu leaps from knife-throwing masters, I guess Madrigal's practices didn't take into account floors that might suddenly become pools of nearly frictionless dust. He let out a shriek and plunged into it, flailing wildly. I could see the wheels spinning in his head, trying to work out what had happened and how the hell he would get out of it. Ramirez shot a look over his shoulder and snarled, Harry! The fingers of my right hand were tingling. I raised it, clenching it into a weak fist. It was good enough to align the rings with my thoughts. Go! Madrigal had worked it out. He thrashed to one side of the trough Ramirez's spell had eaten in the floor, thrust the handle of his spear down into the ultrafine dust, and shoved himself roughly up and out of the sand trap. But not before Ramirez drew the Silver Warden's blade from his hip, a sword designed to let the Wardens of the White Council slice into any enchantment, unraveling it with a single stroke. Carlos drew it, lunged out onto his wounded leg with a cry of pain and challenge, and sliced the willow blade left and right at Madrigal while the spear was grounded and locked into place, supporting him. The sword cut through the wooden haft of the spear, snicker-snack, which was itself an indicator of just how unbelievably sharp an edge it had to have carried. Lucio did good work. That was just collateral damage, though. The warden blade also licked lightly across each of Madrigal's arms. 
the black cloth armbands erupted into sudden flame, the embroidered symbols on them flaring into painfully brilliant light, as if the scarlet thread had been made of magnesium. Any construct that held enough energy to counteract the magic of a major league wizard, especially a combat specialist like Ramirez, had to have been holding all kinds of energy. Ramirez had just cut it loose. Madrigal stared down in sudden panic at the fire writhing up his arms and let out a horrified scream. I crouched, clenched my fist a little tighter, narrowed my eyes, and with a single thought released every bit of energy in the rings, what had been left over after the ghoul attack and what I had added later, all at the same time. The power hit Madrigal low in the belly at a slightly upward angle. It slammed him from his feet as the fire blazed over his arms, lifting him up over the heads of the gathered wraith contingent like a living, sizzling comet, and slammed him into the cavern wall behind them with literally bone-shattering power. Broken, bleeding wreckage tumbled limply down. And the wizards, I snarled, pick up the spare. I turned back to face Vito who was only then clawing his way out of a pile of confused and unhappy Scabus and Malvora vampires and meekly passive thralls. He came to his feet with his sword in hand. I faced him through the glowing dome. I heard a grunt, and then Ramirez stepped up beside me, silver sword in hand, still stained with Madrigal's pinkish blood, his staff in the other, taking some of the weight from his injured foot. I kept the dome up, recovered my blasting rod, and raised it, calling up my will, letting fire illuminate the runes carved down its length one sigil at a time. The new shield was more taxing than the old, and I was getting tired, but there was nothing to do about that but keep going. There were rustling sounds all around us. Vampires came to their feet. They edged closer to the thralls, shifted position so that they would be able to see. There were murmurs and whispers all around us as the white court sensed that the end was near. Vito's aunt was not far from him, and she stood with one hand to her delicate throat. But she stood fast, watching, anxiety and calculation warring for space in her eyes. Over one shoulder, I could just barely make out Lara's profile as she leaned forward over the thrall kneeling between her and the fight, Justine, to watch the end, her lips parted and glistening wet, her eyes glowing. The spectacle of it sickened me, but I thought I understood something of what triggered it in them. Death did not come swiftly to vampires, but the old reaper was in the house, and when he struck, he would take lives that should have lasted for centuries more. That realization let me understand something else about the white court, that for all of their allure, that forbidden attraction, the unnatural magnetism of a creature so beautiful outside and so twisted within, with their ability to give you the greatest pleasure of your life, even as they snuffed it out. They, the vampires themselves, were not immune to that dark attraction. They were regular, near-eternal voyeurs to death's handiwork, after all. They saw the mingled ecstasy and terror on the faces of those they took. They fed upon the surrender of life and passion to the endless silence, knowing, all the while, that in the end, 
they were no different. One day, one night, it would be their turn to face the scythe and the dark cowl, and that they would fall, fall just as helplessly as their own prey had, over and over and over. Death had already taken Madrigal Wraith, and it would soon take Vito Malvora, and the White Court, one and all, longed to see it happen, to feel death brush close by, to be tantalized by its nearness, to revel in its presence and passing. Words could not express how badly they needed therapy. Dysfunctional sickos. I put it out of my head. I still had work to do. All right, I growled to Ramirez. You ready? He bared his teeth in a ferocious smile. Let's get it on. Vito Malvora, the last of Anna's killers, faced me steadily, his eyes gone white. I thought that for a man about to face two fairly deadly wizards determined to kill him, he did not look terribly frightened. In fact, he looked... pleased. Oh, crap. Vito threw back his head and spread his arms. I dropped the shield and shouted, Kill him! Vito lifted his voice in a sudden thunderous roar, and I could sense the will and the power that underlay his call. Master! Ramirez was a beat slow in transferring his sword to his other hand so that he could fling green fire at Vito, and the vampire lowered his arms and crossed them in front of him, hissing words in some strange tongue as he did. Ramirez's strike shattered upon that defense, though bits of greenish fire dribbled onto Vito's arms, each of them chewing out a scoop of flesh as far across as a nickel. Crap! Ramirez snarled. But I didn't have time to listen. I could feel it. Feel power building on the cave floor in front of the white throne. It wasn't explosive magic, but it was strong, quivering on a level so fundamental that I could feel it in my bones. A second later, I recognized this power. I had felt the dim echoes of its passing months before in a cave in New Mexico. There was a deep throb, then another, then a third, and then the air before the white throne suddenly swirled. It spun for a moment, and then there was abruptly an oblong disk of darkness hanging in the air. It spun open, pushing the space of the cavern aside, and a dank, musty, mildew-scented flood of cold air washed out of the passage that had been opened from the never-never and into the deeps. Seconds later, there was a movement in the passage, and then a ghoul sprang through it. Well, I call it a ghoul, but just looking at it, I knew I was seeing something from another age. It was like seeing drawings of things from the last ice age, familiar animals, most of them, but they were all too large, too heavy with muscle, many of them festooned with extra tusks, spurs of horn, and lumpy armored hide. This thing, this ghoul, was of the same order. Eight feet tall if it was an inch, and its hunched shoulders were so wide that it made the thing look more like a gorilla than it did a hyena or baboon, the way most of them did. It had serrated ridges of horn on its stark cheekbones, and its jaw was far more massive with muscle. 
Its forearms were even longer than a normal ghoul's, its claws heavier, longer, and backed by knobbed ridges of horn that would let the thing crush and smash as effectively as it sliced and diced. Its brow ridge was far heavier, too, and its eyes, so recessed as to be little more than glitters from the indirect lighting, could hardly be seen. The ghoul crouched and leaped twenty feet forward with an easy grace, then landed with a roar that made my knees feel a little weak. More of them poured out of the gate. Ten. Twenty. They kept coming and coming. Hells, bells, I whispered. Beside me, Ramirez swallowed. I, he said, am going to die a virgin. Vito let out a wild cackle of glee and howled. At last! He actually capered a little dance step in place. At last the masquerade ends! Kill them! Kill them all! I don't know if it was one of the vampires or one of the thralls, but suddenly a woman screamed in utter terror, and the ghouls went mad with bloodlust and surged forward in an unstoppable wave. I dropped all the power in my shield and all that I had put into the blasting rod, too. Neither of them would get me out of this hellish Cuisinart of pain and death that this cavern was about to become. Right then, I panted, this would be the trap. Chapter 39 I knew it, Ramirez snarled. I knew he was a setup. He turned to look at me and then blinked. It was only then that I realized that I had my teeth bared in a wide smile. That's right, I told him. It is. I've seen some real pros open gateways to the never-never. The youngest of the summer queens of the she could open them so smoothly that you'd never see it happening until it was over. I'd seen Cowl open ways to the never-never as casually and easily as a screen door, with the gate itself being barely noticeable until it vanished a few seconds later, leaving behind it the same musty smell now flooding the cavern. I couldn't do it that smoothly or with that much subtlety, but I could do it just as quickly and just as effectively. I spun on my heel as the ghouls flooded the cavern and plunged into the gathered members of the white court in a killing frenzy. Go! Ramirez shouted. I can't run anyway! I'll hold them! Get out of here! Get over yourself and cover my back, I snarled. I gathered my will again, shifted my staff into my right hand. The runes on the staff blazed to life, and I pointed the staff across my body at the air four feet off the cavern floor. Then I released my gathered will, focused my intentions and the energies aligned in my staff, and shouted, Aparturum! Furious golden and scarlet light flowed down the length of wood, searing a seam in reality. I drew the staff from left to right, drawing a line of fire in the air, and after a heartbeat, that line expanded, burning up like a fire running up a curtain, down like rain sluicing down a car window, and left behind it a gateway, an opening from the wraith deeps to the never-never. The gate opened on a cold and frozen woodland scene. Silvery moonlight slipped through, and a freezing wind gusted blowing powdery white snow into the cavern, substance of the spirit world, which transformed into clear, if chilly, gelatin, the ectoplasm left behind when spirit matter reverted to its natural state. 
There was a stir of shadows, and then my brother burst through the opening, saber in one hand, sawed-off shotgun in the other. Thomas was dressed in heavy biker leather and body armor with honest-to-God chain mail covering the biker's jacket. His hair was tied back in a tail, and his eyes were blazing with excitement. Harry! Take your time, I barked back at him. We're not in a crisis or anything. The others are right behind. Look out! I spun in time to see one of the ghouls bound into the air and sail toward me, the claws on both its hands and feet extended to rip and slash. Ramirez shouted and flung one of his green blasts at the thing. It caught the ghoul at the apex of its flight and simply bored a hole the size of a garbage can in its lower abdomen. The ghoul landed in a splatter of gore and fury. It kept fighting, though its legs flopped around like a seal's tail of almost no use to it. I sprang back, or at least I tried to spring. Opening a gate to the never-never is not complicated, but it isn't easy either. And between that and all the fighting I'd done, I was beginning to bump up against my physical limits. My legs wobbled, and my spring was more like the lazy, hot, and motionless end of summer. Thomas dragged me the last six inches or I wouldn't have avoided the ghoul's claws. He extended his arm, shotgun in hand, and blew the ghoul's head off its shoulders in a spray of flying bits of bone and horn and a mist of horrible black blood. After which the ghoul seized him with one arm and began raking its talons at him with the other. The terrible power of the mangled ghoul was enormous. Links of chainmail snapped and went flying, and Thomas let out a scream of surprise and outrage. What the hell? he snarled. He dropped the shotgun and took off the ghoul's attacking arm with his saber. Then he broke the grip of the last clawed hand and flung the ghoul's body away from him. What the hell was that? he gasped, recovering the shotgun. Uh, I said, that was one. Harry! Ramirez said, backpedaling as best he could with the wounded leg, and bumped into me. I steadied him before he lost his balance. That damn knife was still sticking out of his calf. A dozen more ghouls were charging us. Everything slowed down, the way it sometimes does when fresh adrenaline shifts me into overdrive. The cavern had gone insane. The ghouls had been there for maybe thirty seconds, but there were several dozen of them at least with more pouring out of the neat oval gate on the other side of the cavern. The ghouls had apparently attacked everyone with equal amounts of ferocity and fury. More of them had poured into the Malvoran and Scavis contingent than the Wraith side, but that might have been a function of simple numbers and proximity. The vampires, most of them unarmed and unprepared for a fight, had been taken off guard. That doesn't mean as much to vamps as it does to regular folks but the walls had been splattered with pale blood where the ghouls had rushed in among them, and the battle now raging was horrific. In one spot, Lady Malvora ripped the arm from a ghoul's socket, her skin gone marble white and hard-looking, and proceeded to beat it about the head and shoulders with its own detached limb. The ghoul went down with a shattered skull, but four more of the creatures buried the white court noblewoman under their weight and power, and literally ripped her to pieces in front of my eyes. Elsewhere, a male vampire picked up an eight-foot-long sofa and slammed its end down onto a pair of ghouls 
ripping at the body of a fallen thrall. Still elsewhere, Lord Scavis had rallied a number of his retainers to him, standing off against the maddened ghouls like a rock ignoring a flash flood, for the moment at least. Other sights weren't nearly so pleasant. A vampire trying to flee tripped over a human thrall, a girl no more than eighteen, and dealt her a blow of his fist in pure frustration, snapping her neck. He was brought down by ghouls a breath later. Elsewhere, other vampires seemed to have lost control of their demonic hunger completely, and they had thrown down whatever thralls they could seize, with no regard for gender or for what their particular favorite food might be. One thrall, writhing under Escavis, was screaming and pushing her thumbs into her own eyes. Another shuddered under the fear compulsion of a Malvora, clearly in the midst of a seizure or heart attack, right up until a tide of ghouls overran predator and prey alike. The wraith didn't seem to be as wholly frenzied as the other houses, or maybe they just eaten more today. I saw only a couple of thralls downed by them, being torn out of their clothes and ravaged on the stone. Like those near Lord Scavis, a core of organization had formed around Lara and her father. Someone, I saw a flash of Justine's terrified face, was holding a little air horn up and triggering it wildly. I spotted Vito Malvora charging the ghouls around his fallen aunt and watched as he threw himself on the remains with an inhuman howl and began feasting beside the creatures who had killed her. It had taken seconds for intrigue to devolve into insanity in a thousand simultaneous nightmare-inducing vignettes, none of which I could afford to think significant, save one, the dozen ghouls plunging directly toward me like a football team on the kickoff, huge and fast and ferocious, charging me on a straight line from the enemy gate. For a second, I thought I saw a dark shape in that gate, the suggestion of an outlined hood and cloak. It might have been Cow. I'd have hit him with all the fire I could call, if I'd had a second to spare, but I didn't. I brought my shield up as the ghouls came over the floor and held it fast as the leader of the pack slammed into it in a flare of blue and silver light and a cloud of sparks. The ghoul only howled and began slamming at the barrier with his fists. Every single one hit with the energy of a low-speed car crash, and even with my nifty new bracelet, I could feel the surge of power I needed to keep the shield steady when each of the blows came thundering down. Boots thudded behind me. Someone was shouting, Bam! 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 The ghoul slammed against my shield, and it was an almost painful effort to hold it. Justine! Thomas screamed. I wouldn't be able to hold this ghoul off for long, which was all right because the other eleven were going to go right around my shield while he forced me to hold it steady against him and tear me into tiny pieces and eat me, hopefully in that order. Bootsteps thudded behind me and a voice barked. A second ghoul, several steps in front of the rest, flung itself around my shield but was intercepted by Ramirez. It leaped at him and hit that gelatinous-looking green cloud of a shield he used. What happened to the ghoul, as its speed carried its whole mass all the way through the shield, does not bear thinking on. But Ramirez was going to need new clothes. Bam! 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 Murphy screamed. Harry! Thomas! Ramirez! Down! I dropped and dragged Carlos down with me, lowering my shield as I went. Thomas hit the ground a fraction of a second after I did. 
and the world came apart in thunder. Sound hammered at my head and ears, and I found myself screaming in pain and shock before I ground my teeth and shot a quick glance behind me, trying not to lift my head any higher than I had to. Murphy knelt on the ground by my feet in her dark fatigues, body armor, black baseball cap, and amber safety glasses. She had a weird little rectangular gun about the size of a big box of chocolates held to one shoulder. It had a tiny little barrel, one of those little red dot optical sights, and Murphy's cheek was laid on it, one eye aligned with the sight as she poured automatic fire into the oncoming ghouls in neat, chattering bursts that ripped the ghoul that had been pounding on my shield into a spray of broken bits. It went over backward, thrashing one arm and howling in agony. Beside Murphy, playing Clifford the Big Red Dog to her Emily Elizabeth, was Hendricks. The huge, red-headed enforcer was also kneeling and firing, but the gun he held to his shoulder was approximately the size of an intercontinental ballistic missile and spat out a stream of tracer rounds that ripped into the attacking creatures with a vengeance. Several men I recognized from Marcone's organization were lined up next to him, all firing. So were several more men I didn't recognize, but whose clothing and equipment were sufficiently different to make me think they were freelancers hired for the job. A few more were still pouring through the open gate and into the cavern. The ghouls were hardy as hell, but there's a difference between shrugging off a few rounds from a sidearm and wading through the disciplined hail of assault weapon fire that Marcone's people laid down on them. Had it been one man firing at one ghoul, it might have been different. But it wasn't. There were at least twenty of them shooting into a packed mass, and they kept shooting, even after the targets were thrashing on the ground until their guns were empty. Then they reloaded and returned to firing. Marcone had given his men the instructions I'd advised, and I imagined the guns he had hired on must have been used to facing supernatural threats of this sort as well. Marcone was nothing if not resourceful. Murphy stopped shooting and screamed something at me, but it wasn't until Marcone stepped forward into the peripheral vision of the armed gunman and held up a hand with a closed fist that they stopped firing. For a second, nothing but a high, heavy tone buzzed in my ears, making me deaf to the other sounds in the cavern. The air was full of the sewer stench of wounded ghoul and the sharp scent of burning cordite. A swath of stone floor ten yards across and thirty deep had just been carpeted in pureed ghoul. The fight was still going on all around us, but the main force of ghouls was concentrating on the hard-pressed vampires. We'd bought ourselves a temporary quiet spot, but it couldn't last. Harry! Murphy screamed over the merely horrific cacophony of the slaughter. I gave her a thumbs up. I pushed myself to my feet. Someone gave me a hand up and I took it gratefully, until I saw that it was Marcone, dressed in his black fatigues, holding a shotgun in his other hand. I jerked my fingers away as if he were more disgusting than the things fighting and dying all around us. His cold green eyes wrinkled at the corners. Dresden, if it's all right with you, I think it would be prudent to retreat back through the gate. That was probably a very smart idea. The gate was six feet away from me. We could pull up stakes, hop through, and close it behind us. Gates to the spirit world paid absolutely no attention to trivial things like geography. 
They obeyed laws of imagination, intention, patterned thought. Even if Cowell was back there, he wouldn't be able to open a gate to the same place as mine, because he didn't think like me, feel like me, or share my intent and purpose. Seeing fallout from the war with the Red Court had convinced me that running when you didn't have to fight was a really great idea. In fact, the Merlin had written a letter to the wardens directing them to do so, rather than lose even more of our dwindling combat resources. If we hung around much longer, no one was getting out of this abattoir. Thomas's sword came down on a thrashing ghoul, and he shouted, with desperation bordering on madness, Justine! He spun to me. Harry, help me! Leaving was smart. But my brother wasn't leaving, not without the girl. So I wasn't leaving without her either. Come to think of it, there were a whole lot of people who didn't need to be here. And in point of fact, there were some damned compelling reasons to take them with us when we went. Those reasons didn't make it any less dangerous, and they sure as hell didn't make the idea any less scary, but that didn't stop them from existing. Without Lara's peace initiative, fronted by her puppet father, the White Court would pitch in more heavily with the Reds than they already had. If I didn't get Lara and her puppet out, what was already a grim war with the vampires would quite possibly become an impossible one. That was a damn good reason to stay. But it wasn't the one that kept me there. I saw another ghoul tear into a helpless, unresisting thrall, closed my eyes for a second, and realized that if I did nothing to save as many as I could, I would never leave this cavern. Oh, sure, I might get out alive, but I'd be back here every time I closed my eyes. Dresden! Marcone shouted. I agreed to an extraction, not to a war! A war's all we've got, I shouted back. We've got to get Wraith out of this in one piece, or the whole thing was for nothing, and no one pays you off. No one will pay me off if I'm dead either, Marcone said. I snarled and stepped closer, getting into Marcone's face. Hendricks rolled a half a step toward me and growled. Murphy seized the huge man by one enormous paw did something that involved his wrist and his index finger, and with a grunt, Hendricks dropped to one knee while Murphy held one of his arms out straight behind him and angled painfully upward. Take it easy, big guy, she said. Someone might get hurt. Don't move, Marcone snarled, to his men, not to me. His eyes never wavered from mine. Yes, Dresden? I could tell you to do it, or I'd strand you all in the never-never on the way home, I said quietly. I could tell you to help me, or I'd close the gate, and we'd all die here. I could even tell you to do it, or I'd burn you to ashes where you stand. But I won't tell you that. Marcone narrowed his eyes. No? No. Threats won't deter you. We both know that. I can't force you to do anything, and we both know that, too. I jerked my head at the cavern. People are dying, John. Help me save them. God, please help me. Marcone's head rocked back as if I'd slapped him. After a second, he asked, Who do you think I am, wizard? Someone who can help them, I said. Maybe the only one. He stared at me with empty, opaque eyes. And then he said, very quietly, 
Yes. I felt a fierce smile stretch my mouth and turn to Ramirez at once. Stay here with these guys and hold the gate. Who are these people? Ramirez said. Later, I whirled back to Marcon. Ramirez is with the council, like me. Keep him covered and hold the gate. Marcon pointed at several of the men. You, 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 guard this man and hold the gate. He pointed out several more. You, 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 you. Start rounding up anyone close enough to us to get to without undue risk and help them through. Men leaped to obey, and I felt impressed. I'd never seen Marcone quite like this before. Animated, decisive, and totally confident, despite the nightmare all around. There was a power to it, something that brought order to the terrifying chaos around us. I could see why men followed him, how he had conquered the underworld of Chicago. One of the hired guns cut loose with a burst of fire, still shockingly loud enough to make me flinch. You know what else? I asked Marcone. I don't really need this cave, neither do you. Marcone narrowed his eyes at me, then nodded once and said something over his shoulder to one of the hired guns. Dresden, I would appreciate it if you would ask the sergeant to release my employee. Murph, I complained. Can't you pick on someone your own size? I took a second to admire Hendrix's expression, but said, We need him with his arms still attached. Murphy eased up on the pressure and then released Hendrix's arm. The big man eyed Murphy, rubbing his arm, but regained his feet and his enormous machine gun. Harry, Thomas said, voice tight. We need to move. Yeah, I said. Thomas, Murphy, and... We needed mass. Hendrix, with me. Hendrix checked that with Marcone, who nodded. Follow me, I told them. Stay. What are you doing, Marcone? Marcone had accepted a weapon from one of his gunmen, a deadly little Mac-10 that could spew out about a bergillion bullets in a second or two. He checked it and clipped a strap hanging from it to a ring on his weapon harness. I'm going with you, and you don't have enough time to waste any more of it arguing with me about it. Damn it. He was right. Fine. Follow my lead and stay close. We're going to go round up Lord Wraith and get him and everyone else we can out of here before... Marcone abruptly raised his shotgun and put a blast through one of the nearer fallen ghouls that had begun to move. It thrashed, and he put a second shell into it. The ghoul stopped moving. That was when I noticed that the black ichor that spewed from the ghouls was on the ground, and it was moving by itself. The black fluid rolled and ran like liquid mercury, gathering together in little droplets, then larger gobs. Those in turn ran over the floor, uphill, in some cases, back toward broken ghoul bodies. As I watched, bits of missing flesh ripped from the ghouls began to fill in again as the ichor returned to their bodies. The one Thomas had beheaded actually came crawling back over the floor, having regained some of the use of its legs. It was holding its head up against the stump of its neck with its one arm, and the ichor was flowing from both the severed head and the stump, merging, reattaching it. I saw the ghoul's jaws suddenly stretch, its eyes blink, and then focus on me. Holy crap! Time! 
We didn't have much time. If even the gutted and mangled ghouls could get back up again, there was no way the vampires were winning this one. The best they could hope for was to run. And when more vamps ran, more ghouls would be free to overwhelm us. Or possibly they'd do something even more disgusting than they already had, and we'd all puke ourselves to death. This just can't get much more disturbing, I muttered. Follow me. I gripped my staff in both hands and charged ahead into the mass of maddened vampires and ghouls to save one monster from another. Chapter 40 I sprinted toward the little knot of struggling vampires around the White King, while dozens of uber-ghouls ripped into the leading families of the White Court. I slipped on some slimy ichor, but didn't fall on my ass. For me, that's actually pretty good. I noted more details on the way, and started trying to think ahead of the next few seconds. Assuming we got to the White King in one piece, and convinced Lara to team up and follow us, then what? What was the next step? At least a dozen ghouls bounded out the tunnel, heading up that long slope to the cave's entrance. They'd be in a good position to stop Lara's mortal security forces from pushing through the tunnel to rescue the king. Stopping a charge over open ground with firearms is one thing. Using a gun to charge a large, deadly, powerful predator in close quarters is a different proposition entirely, and not a winning one. Naturally, the ghouls in the tunnel would also be in position to intercept anyone who tried to flee, which meant that we had to leave through the gate, which meant that if Ramirez and Marcon's men lost it, we were screwed. And that meant that if Cowell was over there and saw what was going on, he would hardly sit by doing nothing. I might be able to counter him if I were defending the gate. My skills aren't fine, but I'm pretty strong, and I'm good at adapting them on the fly. Cowell had cleaned my clock in two fights already, but slowing and delaying him wasn't the same as trying to wipe the walls with him. Even if I couldn't be a real threat to him personally, I could tie him up long enough to hold the gate until we could skedaddle. Ramirez couldn't. He was a dangerous combat wizard, but his skills just weren't strong enough or broad enough to pose a significant obstacle to Cowell. If Cowell, or Vito for that matter, saw what was going on, and the ghouls concentrated on the gate. The shrieks and roars of the struggle on our right suddenly got louder, and I saw the resistance around Lord Scavis and his henchmen suddenly buckle. The horrible glee of the ghouls rushing into the opening was almost more terrifying than the carnage that followed. I caught a glimpse of Vito Malvora in the middle of the mess, shoving a ghoul toward a wounded vampire, snarling at others, giving orders. The largest of the ghouls were with Vito. That vampire has the strongest and largest of those creatures with him, Marcone called to me as we ran. He'll head any pockets of resistance with them. Use them as a hammer. I can see that, I snapped. Murphy, Marcone, cover our right. Hendricks, Thomas, get ready to go in. Go in where? Hendricks asked. I took my staff in hand, focused on the fight raging around the White King, and called up my will and hellfire. In the hole I'm about to make, I growled. Get them out! They're mostly eating now, but the second we start to break them free, Marcone cautioned from behind me, these others are going to come after us. I know, I said. I'll handle it. 
I felt something warm press up against my lower back, Murphy's shoulders. We'll make sure that- Her voice broke off suddenly, and that boxy little submachine gun chattered in three quick bursts, punctuated by a single throaty roar from Marcone's shotgun. Holy crap, that was close. Another, Marcone warned, and the shotgun blasted again. The air horn in Justine's hand started blaring more desperately. Harry! Thomas shouted. Go! I shouted at Thomas and Hendricks. Then I leveled the staff at the nearest clump of the enormous ghouls and shouted, Fozari! My will lashed out, leashed to Lashiel's hellfire, and rushed upon the ghouls, exploding in a sphere of raw force that blazed with flickers of sulfurous flame. It blew them up and outward like extras on the set of the A-Team, flying in high arcs. Some of them flew right through the falling curtain of water behind the throne and into the abyssal depths below. Others slammed hard into the nearest wall, and still others fell among the frenzied ghouls now finishing off Lord Scavis and his retainers. Thomas and Hendricks charged forward. My brother had slipped his shotgun into a sheath over one shoulder and now wielded his saber in one hand and that inward-bent knife in the other. The first ghoul he reached was still staggering from the blast that had sent his companions flying, and Thomas never gave him a chance to recover. The saber removed its arm, and a scything, upward-sweeping slash of the crooked knife struck its head from its shoulders. A vicious kick to the small of its back crunched into its spine and sent the maimed, beheaded creature flying into the next in the line. Hendricks came in at Thomas's side. The big man could not possibly overpower one of the ghouls, despite all the muscle. But he did have an important factor on his side. Mass. Hendricks was a huge man, three hundred pounds and more, and once I saw him hit the ghouls, I no longer had any doubts about whether he had played football. He hit an unbalanced ghoul in the back, knocking the creature sprawling, slammed the stock of the huge gun into the neck of a ghoul who turned to follow Thomas's motion, then ducked a shoulder and slammed it into the stunned creature's flank, sending it sprawling. Thomas hacked down another ghoul. Hendricks powered through a single creature who never had the chance to set itself against his locomotive rush, and we were suddenly faced with a line of savage goddesses bathed in black blood. Lara stood in the center, her white robes pressed against her skin, soaked in the dark fluids leaking from crushed and broken ghouls, and it left absolutely nothing to the imagination. Her hair, too, had been soaked flat to her skull, and it clung to the skin of her black-spattered cheek and to the lines of her dark-stained throat. In each hand, she held a long, wavy-bladed knife, long enough to qualify as a small sword, though God only knew where she'd concealed the weapons before. Her eyes were chrome-silver, wide and triumphant, and I jerked my gaze away from them as I felt a mad desire just to stare and see what happened. In that moment, Lara was more than simply a vampire of the White Court, a succubus, pale and deadly. She was a reminder of days gone by, when mankind paid homage to blood-soaked goddesses of war and death, revered the dark side of the protective maternal spirit, the savage core of the strength that still allowed tiny women to lift cars off their children or to turn upon their tormentors with newfound power. Lara's power, at that moment, hovered around her, 
deadly in its primal seduction, its sheer strength. On either side of her stood two of her sisters, all of them tall, all of them beautiful, all of them gorgeous and soaked in gore, all of them armed with those wavy-bladed short swords. I didn't know any of them, but they stared at me with ravenous energy, with maddeningly seductive destruction spattered all over them, and it took me two or three seconds to remember what the hell was going on. Lara swayed a step toward me, all the motion in her thighs and hips, her eyes, brilliant and steady, focused on me, and I felt a sudden urge to kneel that vibrated in my brain and elsewhere. I mean, how bad could that be? Just think of the view from down there. And it had been a long time since a woman had... I dimly heard Murphy's gun chattering again and Marcone's, and I shook my head and kept my feet. Then I scowled at Lara and croaked, We don't have time for this. Do you want out or not? Thomas! Justine cried. She appeared from behind Lara and the Wraith sisters and threw herself bodily upon my brother. Thomas wrapped an arm around her without releasing his grip on his knife and pressed her hard against him. I could see his profile as she held him back, and his face was transported, I suppose. Thomas always had a certain look. Whether he was making a joke, working out, or giving me a hard time about something, the sense of him was always the same. Self-contained, confident, pleased with himself, and unimpressed with the world around him. In Justine's arms, he looked like a man in mourning, but he bent his whole body to her, holding her with every fiber and sinew, not merely his arm, and every line of his face became softer, somehow gentler, as though he had been suddenly relieved of an intolerable agony I had never realized he felt, though I noticed that neither he nor Justine touched each other's skin. Ah... Lara said. Her voice was a quavering, silvery thing, utterly fascinating and completely inhuman. True love. Dresden! Marcone shouted. Hendrix spun away from where he had been staring at the Wraith sisters with much the same expression I must have had and stomped past me. I shortly heard him adding the racket of his big gun to that of Marcone's and Murphy's. Wraith! I shouted. I propose an alliance between yours and mine, until we get out of here alive. Lara stared at me with her empty silver eyes for a second. Then she blinked them once, and they turned, darkening by a few degrees. They went out of focus for a moment, and she tilted her head. Lord Wraith abruptly stepped forward, appearing from behind his daughters. Naturally, Dresden, he said in a smooth tone. Unless you knew what you were looking for, you'd never have seen the glassy shine in his eyes or heard the slightly stilted cadence of his words. He put on a good act, but I had to wonder just how much of his mind Lara had left him. Though I regard myself as bound by honor to see to your protection in the face of this treachery, I can only be humbled by the nobility of you offering me your... Yeah, yeah, whatever, all right, I snapped, glaring past him at Lara. Run away now, speeches later. Lara nodded and looked quickly around her. Maybe twenty of the Wraith clan had survived the fight. The remaining ghouls had sprung away during our unexpected assault, 
and now prowled in circles around us well out of arm's reach, but close enough to rush back in if they saw a weakness. They were waiting for the others to finish off the last of the Scavis and Malvora. Once they got here, they'd overrun us easily. Near the gate, Marcone's soldiers had a steady line of white-robed thralls moving out of the cavern. There were rather more of them still alive than I had supposed there would be, until I saw that the circling ghouls were largely ignoring the passive thralls, focused instead on what they knew to be the real threat, the keepers of the mind-numbed herds. Dresden! Marcone shouted. His shotgun boomed once more and then clicked empty. I heard him feeding new shells in as Murphy's gun chattered. They're coming! I grunted acknowledgement and said to Lara, Bring the thralls. What? Bring the bloody thralls, I snarled, or you can damn well stay here. Lara gave me a look that might have made me a little nervous about getting killed if I weren't such a stalwart guy, but then Lord Wraith snapped to the vamps around him. Bring them. I turned, drawing more hellfire into the staff, and knew that I wasn't going to be able to manage much more in the way of magic. I had just done too much, and I was on my last legs. I had to pull off one more spell, if any of us were going to make it out. Murphy's gun kept rattling away, as did Hendrix's, and I could hear gunfire coming from the soldiers around the gate now as well, as the ghouls on the opposite side of the cavern began to turn from the ruined remains of the leaders of House Scavis and Malvora. Go, I said. Go, go, go! We headed for my gate. The vampires seized thralls as they went, tossing them into the center of the group, forming a ring around them. Wraith formed the core of the group with his daughters and their swords around him, and the thralls forming a thick human shield around them in turn. Trust Lara to turn what she had seen as a hindrance to her advantage. It was the way her mind worked. We started out at a quick pace, and then an almost human voice cried out. There was a surge of magic that flashed against my wizard senses, and the lights went out. The cavern's lighting had been of excellent quality. It had remained functional all through the duel, despite the magic Ramirez and I had been hurling around, and through the opening of not one, but two gates to the Never Never. That implied that Wraith had invested in lighting with a long track record of high performance and reliability to continue functioning through so much but there's never been an electrical system a wizard couldn't put down with a little direct effort, and this one was no exception. Even as I lifted my staff to call up more light, my brain was paddling up the logic stream. Vittorio had seen us making a break for it, or Cowl had, though again I had to remind myself that Cowl's presence was still theoretical, however well supported by circumstantial evidence the theory might be. Killing the lights wasn't going to be a hindrance to the vampires or to the ghouls, which meant that he was trying to hamper us people. Sinking the cavern into Stygian blackness would make Marcone's troops almost impotent, hamper and slow any of the escaping thralls, therefore slowing the vampires apparently intent upon protecting them. My staff hadn't been made to produce light, but it was a flexible tool, and I sent more hellfire through it as I lifted it overhead to light our way sending out red-orange light in the shape of the runes and sigils carved into the staff out over the darkness. And, just as I did, I realized what else the darkness would do. 
it would force the humans to produce light. Specifically, it would draw the response from wizards that being sunk into darkness always did, we called light. By one method or another, it was the first thing any wizard would do in a situation like this one. We'd do it fast, too. Faster than anyone without magic could pull out a light of his own. So, as my staff lit up, I realized that I had just declared my exact position to every freaking monster in the whole freaking cavern. The darkness had been a trap designed to elicit this very response, and I had walked right into it. Ghouls let out howls of fury and surged toward me through a hundred rune-shaped scarlet spotlights that glinted on their bloodied fangs, their talons, those horrible, hungry, sunken eyes. Guns roared all around me, splattering the nearest ghouls into black-bloodied slurry. It wasn't enough. The creatures simply surged forward, being torn apart, until Murphy's gun clicked empty. Reloading! She screamed, ejecting the weapon's magazine, hopping a step back as the ghoul she'd only wounded continued toward me. Marcone's gun roared and that ghoul went away, but when he pumped the weapon, it clicked on an empty chamber. He dropped it for the little submachine gun clipped to his harness, and for a second or two, it cut through ghouls like a scythe, ripping in a great horizontal swath, and then it ran empty. I stepped forward as another wave of ghouls bounded over those the gunfire had held off. Murphy and Marcone had bought me time enough for the spell I'd been forming in my mind to meet with my will and congeal into fire. I whirled the staff overhead and then brought it down, gripped in both hands, striking its end to the stone floor as I cried, Thamamurus! There was a cracking howl, and fire ripped its way up out of the stones of the floor. It rippled out from the point of impact in a line running thirty or forty yards in either direction, a sudden fountain of molten stone that shot up in an ongoing curtain ten or twelve feet high, angled toward the ghouls charging us from the far side of the cavern. Blazing liquid stone fell down over them, among them, and the oncoming tide of screaming ghouls broke upon that wall of stone and fire with screams of agony, and for the first time, of fear. The wall held off fully half of the ghouls in the cavern and screened us from Vittorio's sight. It also provided all the humans with plenty of light to see by. Hell's bells, I'm good, I wheezed. The effort of the spell was monumental, even with the hellfire to help me, and I staggered, the light vanishing from the runes of my staff. Harry, left, Murphy screamed. I turned my head to my left in time to see a ghoul, half of its body a charred ruin, slam Hendrix aside as if the huge man had been a rag doll and throw itself at me, while two more leaped over the group from behind and tried to follow in its wake. I was pretty sure I could have taken the ghoul, provided he wasn't much heavier than a loaf of bread and had no idea how to use those claws and fangs. But just in case he was heavier than he looked and competent at ripping things apart, I flung up my shield bracelet. It sputtered into life for a second, and the ghoul bounced off it, and the effort it cost me nearly made me black out. I fell. The ghoul recovered and thrashed toward me, even as I saw Thomas appear from the ranks of vampires and thralls and attack its two companions from behind. My brother's pale face was all but glowing, 
His eyes were wide with fear, and I hadn't ever seen him move that fast. He hamstrung both of the other ghouls with the blades in his hands. Well, if hacking through three-quarters of the leg, including the thick black thigh bones, could be considered hamstringing, he left them on the ground while the other wraiths tore them to pieces. Thomas leaped at the lead ghoul. He wasn't fast enough. The ghoul came at me with a dreadful howl. I didn't have enough energy left to lift my body up off the floor and face my killer head on. Fortunately, I did have energy enough to draw the forty-four from my duster pocket. I'd like to tell you that I waited till the last second for the perfect shot, coolly facing down the ghoul with nerves of steel. The truth is that my nerves were pretty much shot, and I was too tired to panic. I barely got the sights lined up before the ghoul's jaws opened wide enough to engulf my entire head. I never consciously pulled the trigger, but the gun roared and the ghoul's head snapped back before it crashed into me. There was pain, and I suddenly couldn't breathe. Harry! Thomas cried. The weight vanished from my chest, and I sucked in a breath. I got my left hand free and pounded at the ghoul with the forty-four. Easy! Murphy shouted. Easy, Harry! Her small, strong fingers caught my wrist and eased the gun out of it. I dimly realized that I was lucky it hadn't gone off again while I was thrashing around with it. Thomas flung the ghoul off me, and it landed in a heap. The back upper quarter of its head was gone. Just gone. Nice shot, Marcone noted. I looked back to see him lifting a pale and sweating Hendrix, getting one of the big man's arms over his shoulder and supporting his weight. Shall we? Thomas hauled me to my feet. Come on, no time to rest now. Right, I said. I raised my voice and called, Lara, get them moving. We started toward the gate, keeping the curtain of molten fire on our flank. It was hard just moving one foot in front of the other. It took me a while to notice that Justine was under one shoulder, supporting part of my weight, and that I was walking amidst the thralls near the White King and his guard. The vampires were still the outer guard, spread out over a half-circle in what amounted to a running battle. Only we weren't running. It was more of a steady walk made all the more eerie by hellish light and shadow and desperation. Murphy's gun chattered several more times and then fell silent. I heard the throaty bellow of my forty-four. I checked my hand, and sure enough, my gun wasn't there. Leave them, I heard Lara snap, her cold silver voice slithering around pleasantly in my ear. Keep the pace steady. Stay together. Give them no opening. We walked the vampires growing more desperate and less human as the fight went on. Ghouls roared and screamed and died. So did wraiths. The cold subterranean air of the cavern had grown greenhouse hot, and it felt as if there weren't enough air left in the air. I panted hard, but it never seemed to get enough into my lungs. I kept lifting one foot and putting it back down again, numbly noticing that Marcone was behind me with Hendrix doing the same thing. I glanced to my left and saw the fiery fountain of molten stone beginning to dwindle. It hadn't been an ongoing spell I had to keep pumping power into. That's the beauty of earth magic. Momentum. Once you get it moving, it doesn't slow down very quickly. I'd poured fire magic into all that stone and forced it to expand out of the earth around it. 
It had simply taken this long for the spell to play out. But that's exactly what had happened. The spell was beginning to play out, much as I had. The curtain lowered slowly, thinning and growing less hot, and I could see ghouls behind it ready to attack. I noted idly that they would be able to rush right into our group of dazed thralls, wounded gangsters and weary wizards, with nothing much to oppose them. Oh, God, Justine whimpered. She'd noticed, too. Oh, God. The ghouls had all seen the curtain lowering. Now they rushed forward to the very edge of the fading curtain, seemingly uncaring of the molten stone on the floor. Dozens of them. A solid line of the creatures just waiting for the first chance to bounce over and eat our faces. A blast of green light flashed down the line. It went completely through two ghouls, leaving them howling on the floor, severed a third ghoul's arm at the shoulder, and continued on through the white throne, leaving a hole the size of a laundry basket in its back. Ramirez had been waiting for them to line up like that. He stood, his weight on one foot, at the far end of the lowering wall of flaming stone, on the ghoul side, arms akimbo. They whirled toward him, but Ramirez started lifting his arms alternately from his hip to extend before him, a motion like that of a gunfighter in the Old West, and every draw flung more silent green shafts of deadly light through the ghouls. Those nearest him tried to rush forward for the kill, but Ramirez had their measure now, and he wasn't content to leave a single gaping hole, trusting that it would incapacitate them sufficiently. He hurled blast after hideously ruinous blast and left nothing but a scattered pile of twitching parts of the first ghouls to rush him, and those beyond them suffered nearly as greatly. Fresh spilled black ichor rushed back and forth across the cavern floor until it looked like the deck of a ship pitching on a lunatic sea. What are you waiting for, Dresden? Ramirez shouted. One little bit of volcanomancy and you get worn out! A particularly well-aimed bolt tore the heads from a pair of ghouls at once. How do you like that? We all began hurrying ahead. Not bad, I slurred back at him. For a virgin. His rate of fire had begun to slacken, but the jibe drew a fresh burst of ferocity out of Ramirez, and he redoubled his efforts. The ghouls howled their frustration and bounded away from the wall of fire, out of its treacherous light and away from the power of the Warden of the White Council, ripping them to shreds. It hurts, bellowed Ramirez drunkenly, flinging a last pair of bolts at a fleeing ghoul. Ow! Ow, it hurts! It hurts to be this good! There was a hiss of sound, a flicker of steel, and one of Vito Malvora's knives hit Ramirez's stomach so hard that it threw the young man off his feet and to the ground. Man down! Marcone shouted. We were close enough to the gate that I could see the pale blue light that spilled through it. Marcone waved his hand through a couple of signals and flicked a finger at Ramirez, then at Hendricks. The armed men, mercenaries, they had to be, no gang of criminal thugs was so disciplined, rushed forward, taking charge of the wounded, seizing Ramirez and dragging him back toward the gate, roughly pushing and shoving the thralls ahead and toward the gate. I went to Ramirez, staggering away from Justine. The knife had hit him in the guts. Hard. Ramirez had worn a Kevlar vest, which wasn't much good for stopping sharp, pointy things, 
though it had at least kept the knife's hilt from tearing right into the muscle and soft tissue. I knew there were some big arteries there, and more or less where they were located, but I couldn't tell if the knife was at the right angle to have hit them. His face was terribly pale, and he blinked his eyes woozily as the soldiers started dragging him across the floor, and his legs thrashed weakly, bringing his own left leg up to his point of view. Bloody hell, he gasped. Harry, there's a knife in my leg. When did that happen? In the duel, I told him. Don't you remember? I thought you'd stepped on me and sprained my ankle, Ramirez replied. Then he blinked again. Bloody hell, there's a knife in my guts. He peered at them. And they match. Be still, I warned him. Vampires and thralls and mercenaries were falling back through the gate now. Don't move around, all right? He began to say something, but a panicked vampire kicked his leg as he went past. Ramirez's face twisted in pain and then suddenly slackened, his eyes fluttering closed. I saw his staff on the ground and grabbed it and pitched it through the gate after him, the men carrying him as the fight behind me got closer while most of the retreating vampires still fought off the determined assault of the ghouls. How long? I heard Marcone demand of one of the soldiers. The man checked his watch, an expensive Swiss stopwatch, with springs and cogs, not some digital thing. Three minutes, eleven seconds, the soldier said. How many charges? Six doubles, he replied. Hey, I snapped at Marcone. Cutting it a little close, huh? Any longer and they wouldn't accomplish anything, Marcone replied. Can you walk? Yes, I can walk, I snapped. I could get someone to carry you, Marcone said, his tone solicitous and sincere. Bite me, I growled and called. Murphy? Here, Murphy called. She was among the last of those retreating from the ghoul onslaught. Her boxy little Volvo of a gun was hanging by its strap on one shoulder, and she held my forty-four in both hands though it looked almost comically over-large for her. Ramirez has got a knife in the stomach, I said. I need you to look after him. He's the other warden, right? Yeah, I said. He's already through the gate. What about you? I shook my head and made sure my duster was still covering most of me. Malvor is still out there. He might try to kill our gate or try some other spell. I've got to be one of the last ones through. Murphy gave me a skeptical look. You look like you're about to fall over. You in any shape to do more magic? True, I said and offered her my staff. Hey, maybe you should do it. She gave me a hard look. No one likes a wise-ass, Harry. Are you kidding? As long as a wise-ass is talking to someone else, people love him. I gave her half a smile and said, Get out of here. How are we getting back out again? She asked. Thomas led us here, but... He'll lead you back, I said, or one of the others will, or Ramirez, if some idiot doesn't kill him trying to help him. If it's all the same to you, I'd rather you did it, Harry. She touched my hand and departed through the broad oval of the gate. I saw her hurry through ankle-deep snow beneath what looked like sheltering pine trees to Ramirez's side where he lay limply on his cloak. The thralls looked confused, which of course they would be, and cold which, given their wardrobe, of course they would be. That's all of ours, shouted the soldier to Marcone. Two minutes, fifteen seconds. He had to shout. The nearest of the ghouls were about ten feet away, 
doing battle against, for lack of a more cliched term, a thin white line of wraith, including my brother with his two blades spinning. Go, Marcone said, and the soldier went through. Marcone, a fresh shotgun in hand, stepped up next to me. Dresden, what are you hanging around for? If you recall, he said, I agreed to extract you alive. I'm not leaving until I've done so. He paused and added, Provided, of course, that it happens in the next two minutes. From where I was standing, I could see three two-brick bundles of C4, detonators thrust into their soft surfaces, each fitted with old-fashioned precision timepieces. They were simple charges on the floor. The other three must have been shaped charges affixed to the cavern walls. I had no idea how much destruction was going to be wrought by them, but I didn't suppose it would be much fun to be there when they went boom. Alas, that the poor ghouls would most likely be staying for the fireworks. Thomas, I called. Time to go. Go, Thomas shouted, and the other vampires with him broke from their line and fled for the gate, except for one, a tall, female wraith who... I blinked. Holy crap. It was Lara. The other vampires fled past me through the gate, and Thomas and his sister stood alone against the horde of eight-foot ghouls, stood against it, and stopped it cold. Their skin gleamed colder and whiter than glacial ice, their eyes blazed silvery bright, and they moved with blinding speed and utterly inhuman grace. His saber fluttered and slashed, drawing a constant stream of blood, punctuated by devastating blows of his kukri. All right. That was the name of that inward-bent knife. I knew I'd remember it eventually. Lara moved with him, trailing her damp midnight hair and shredded silk kimono. She covered Thomas's back like a cloak hung from his shoulders. She was no weaker than her younger brother, and perhaps even faster, and the wavy-bladed short sword in her hand had a penchant for leaving spills of ghoulish entrails in its wake. Together, the pair of them slipped aside from repeated rushes and dealt out deadly violence to one foe after another. Ultimately, I think their fight was futile, and all the more valiant and astonishing for being so doomed. No matter how lethal Thomas and Lara proved to be, or how many ghouls went screaming to the floor, their black blood continued to slither back into their fallen bodies, and the ghouls that had been taken down continued to gather themselves together to rise and fight again. Most of those who re-entered the fight with renewed vigor and increased fury remained hideously maimed in some way. Some trailed their entrails like slimy gray ropes. Others were missing sections of their skulls. At least two entered the fray armless, simply biting with their wide jaws of vicious teeth. Beside the beauty of the brother and sister vampires, the ghouls' deformed bodies and hideous injuries were all the more monstrous, all the more vile. My God, Marcone said, his voice hushed. It is the most beautiful nightmare I've ever seen. He was right. It was hypnotic. Time, I asked him, my voice rough. He consulted his own stopwatch. One minute, forty-eight seconds. Thomas! I bellowed. Lara! Now! With that, the pair of them bounded apart, apparently the last thing the ghouls had been expecting, and dashed for the gate. 
I turned to go, and that was when I felt it. There was a dull pulse, a throb of some power that seemed at once alien and familiar, a sickening, whirling sensation, and then a sudden stab of energy. It wasn't a magical attack. An attack implies an act of force that might be predicted, countered, or at least mitigated in some way. This was something far more existential. It simply asserted itself, and by its very existence, it dictated a new reality. A spike of thought slammed into my being like a physical blow. It wasn't any one single thought. It was instead a melange of them, a cocktail of emotions so heavy, so dense, that it drove me instantly to my knees. Despair flooded through me. I was so tired. I had struggled and fought to achieve nothing but raw chaos, rendering the whole of my effort useless. My only true friends had been badly injured or had run, leaving me in this hellish cavern. Those who currently stood beside me were monsters of one stripe or another. Even my brother, who had returned to his monstrous ways in feeding on other human beings. Terror followed hard on its heels. I had been paralyzed while surrounded by monsters of resilience beyond description. In mere seconds they would fall on me. I had fallen with my face toward the gate, and though physical movement was beyond me, I could see that everyone, everyone had also pitched over onto the ground, vulnerable to the attack while the gate remained open. Vampires, thralls, and mortal warriors alike, they had all fallen. Guilt came next. Murphy, Carlos. I had gotten them both killed. Useless. It had all been useless. Marcon's stopwatch lay on the ground near his limply outstretched hand. He'd fallen next to me. The second hand was sweeping rapidly downward, and the watches on the charges of C-4, the nearest of them about ten feet away, did the same. Then I understood it. This was Vittorio Malvora's attack. This hideous, paralyzing brew of everything darkest in the mortal soul was what he had poured out. As the wraith administered desire, the Malvorans gave fear, and the Scavus despair. Vito had gone beyond them all. He had taken all the worst of the human soul and forged it into a poisonous, deadly weapon. And I hadn't been able to do a damned thing to stop him. I lay staring at Marcone's stopwatch and wondered which would kill us all first, the ghouls or the explosion. Chapter 41 between 1 minute 34 and 1 minute 33, the backward-running hand of the stopwatch suddenly halted, or it seemed that way. But several moments later, the hand twitched down to the next second, and the tick sounded more like a hollow thump. I just lay there, staring at it, and wondering if this was how my mind was reacting to my own imminent death. And then I thought that I'd had enough will to wonder about something— rather than just being crushed and suffocated by despair and terror. Maybe that was how I was reacting to my imminent death, with denial and escapist self-induced hallucinations. Not precisely, my host, came Lashiel's voice. I blinked, 
which was a lot more voluntary movement than I'd had a second before. I tried to look around. Don't try, Lashiel said, her voice a little alarmed. You could harm yourself. What the hell? Had she somehow slowed down time? Time does not exist, she said, her tone firm. Not the way you consider it, at any rate. I have temporarily accelerated the processes of your mind. The stopwatch thud-thumped again. One minute thirty-two. Accelerating my brain. That made more sense. After all, we all use only about ten percent of our brain's capacity anyway. There was no reason it couldn't handle a lot more activity. Well, except that... Yes, she said. It is dangerous, and I cannot maintain this level of activity for very long before it begins inflicting permanent damage. I presumed that Lashiel was about to make me an offer I couldn't refuse. Her voice became sharp, angry. Don't be a fool, my host. If you perish, I perish. I simply seek to give you an option that might enable us to survive. Right. And by some odd coincidence, might that option just happen to involve the coin in my basement? Why do you continue to be so stubborn about this, my host? Lashiel demanded, her voice tight with frustration. Taking up the coin would not enslave you. It would not impede your ability to choose for yourself. Not at first, no. But it would finish up with me enslaved to the true Lashiel, and she knew it. Not necessarily, she said. There was a tone of pleading to her voice. Accommodations can be reached, compromises made. Sure, if I'm willing to go along with her every plan, I'm sure she'd be quite agreeable. But you would be alive, Lashiel cried. It didn't matter, given that the coin was buried in the stone under my lab anyway. Not an obstacle, my host. I can teach you how to call it to you within a few seconds. Thud thump. One minute thirty-one. A thud came from behind me. Footsteps. The ghouls. They were coming. I could see part of Marcone's face twisted in agony under Vittorio Malvora's psychic assault. Please, Lashiel said. Please let me help you. I don't want to die. I didn't want to die either. I closed my eyes for another second. Thud, thump. One minute thirty. It took an effort of will and what seemed like several moments of effort, but I managed to whisper aloud, No. But you will die, Lashiel said, her voice anguished. It was going to happen sooner or later, but it didn't have to be tonight. Then, quickly, first, you must picture the coin in your mind. I can help you. Not like that. She could help me. Silence. Thud, thump. One minute twenty-nine. I can't, she whispered. I thought she could. I can't, she replied, her voice anguished. She would never forgive that, never accept me back into her. Just take the coin. Harry, just take the coin. P please. I gritted my teeth. Thud, thump. One minute twenty-eight. Again, I said, no. I can't do this for you. Untrue. She'd already partially shielded me from the effects of Malvora's attack. The situation was simple for her. She could do more of what she'd already done, or she could stand by and do nothing. 
it was her choice. Lashiel appeared in front of me for the first time, on her hands and knees. She looked... odd. Too thin, her eyes too sunken. She had always looked strong, healthy, and confident. Now her hair was a wreck, her face twisted with pain, and... And she was crying. She looked blotchy, and she needed a tissue. Her hands touched either side of my face. It could hurt you. It could inflict brain damage. Do you understand what that could mean, Harry? Never can tell. It might be nice to have brain damage. I already like Jello, And maybe they'd have cable TV at whatever home they wound up sticking me in. Either way, it would be better than having my brain scooped out by ghouls. Lashiel stared at me for a moment and then let out a choking little laugh. It's your brother, your friends, that's why. If frying my brain got Murphy, Ramirez, Thomas, and Justine out of the mess I'd gotten them into, it would be worth it. She stared at me for another long moment. Thud, thump, one minute twenty-seven. Then a look of almost childish resentment came over her face, and she looked over one shoulder before turning back to me. I... She shook her head and said, very softly, wonderingly, She... doesn't deserve you. Deserved or not, the fallen angel wasn't getting me. Not ever. Lashiel squared her shoulders and straightened. You're right, she said. It is my choice. Listen to me. She leaned closer, her eyes intent. Vittorio has been given power. That is how he can do this. He is possessed. I wished I could have raised my eyebrows. Possessed by what? An outsider, Lashiel said. I have felt such a presence before. This attack is drawn directly from the mind of the outsider. Gosh, that was interesting. Not relevant, but interesting. It is relevant, Lashiel said, because of the circumstances of your birth, because of why you were born, Harry. Your mother found the strength to escape Lord Wraith for a reason. What the hell was she talking about? Thud, thump, one minute twenty-six. There was a complex confluence of events, of energies, of circumstances that would have given a child born under them the potential to wield power over outsiders. Which didn't make any sense. Outsiders were all but immune to magic. It took power garnered only from centuries of study and practice, wielded by the most powerful wizards on the planet even to slow them down. Strange, then, don't you think? that you defeated one when you were sixteen years old. What? Since when? The only serious victory I'd had over a spiritual entity when I was that young had been when my old master had sent an assassin demon after me. It hadn't turned out the way Demorne had been hoping. Lashio leaned closer. He who walks behind is an outsider, Harry. A terrible creature, the most potent of the walkers a powerful knight among their ruling entities. But when he came for you, you overthrew him. True, I had. 
It was all still a little blurry, but I remembered the end of the fight well enough. Lots and lots of kaboom, and then no more demon. And there was a burning building. Thud, thump. One minute twenty-five. Listen, Lashiel said, giving my head a little shake. You have the potential to hold great power over them. You may be able to escape the power now held over you. If you are sure it is what you want, I can give you an opportunity to defy Malvora's sending. But you'll have to hurry. I don't know how long it will take to throw it off, and they are almost upon you. After which, we were going to have a long talk about my mother and these outsiders and their relation to the Black Court and exactly what the hell was going on. Lashio, Lash, rather, nodded once and said, I will tell you all that I can, Harry. Then she rose and stepped past me and toward the oncoming ghouls and Vito Malvora. Her clothes made a slow, soft rustle as she stepped away from me, and Marcone's stopwatch went thud. Tick, tick, tick. For just a second, no more than a heartbeat or two, I remained impaled on that horrible pike of psychic anguish. Then an odd sensation fell over me, and I don't know precisely how to describe it, except to say that it felt like stepping from brutal, burning sunlight into a sudden, deep shadow. Then that horrible pain eased, not much, but enough to let me suddenly move my arms and my head, enough to know that I could act. So I froze in place. Mine! howled a voice so distorted with lust and violence that it sounded like nothing human. She is mine! Footsteps came closer. Thump, drag, thump, drag. I saw Vittorio's horribly burned leg go by in my peripheral vision. The sensation of shade began to fade at the edges, with the power of Vittorio's spell returning by slow degrees, like sunlight beginning to burn its way through a sheet of frosted glass. Little wraith bitch, Vittorio snarled. What I do to you will make your father's blood run cold. There was the sound of a heavy blow. I twitched my head a tiny bit to one side to get a look at what was around me. A lot of really huge ghouls, that was what, apparently no less fierce for being battered and torn by the battle. Vittorio stood over Lara, his face pale, his leg horribly burned. He had his right hand held out, the hand that projects energy, fingers spread, and I could still feel the terrible power radiating from them. He was maintaining the pressure of the spell that held everyone down, then, and I could see from the reaction of the ghouls around him that they were feeling the bite of the spell, too. It seemed only to make them flinch and cower a little, rather than incapacitating them entirely. Maybe they were more used to feeling such things. He kicked Lara in the ribs, twice more, heavy and ugly kicks that cracked bones. Lara let out little sounds of pain, and I think it was that, more than anything, that let me push the paralyzing all of hostile magic completely away from my mind. I moved one hand, and that slowly. From the lack of outcry, I took it that no one noticed. We'll put a pin in this for now, little wraith bitch, he whirled toward my brother. I had intended to find you, you know, Thomas, Vittorio continued. 
An outcast like you, I assumed, might be inclined to throw in his lot with someone with a more equitable vision for the future. But you're like some sad dog. Too ugly to be allowed into the house, but faithfully defending the master that holds him in contempt. Your end isn't going to be pretty either. He started to turn toward me, smiling. But first, we start with the busybody wizard. He finished the turn, saying, Burns hurt, Dresden. Have I mentioned how much I hate being exposed to fire? No sense in wasting perfectly good irony. I waited until he said fire to spin and pull the trigger on Marcone's shotgun. The weapon bucked hard. I hadn't had time to brace it properly, and slammed into my shoulder with bruising force only partly attenuated by my duster. The blast pretty well removed Vittorio's right hand at the middle of his forearm. The way I hear it, amputation is bad for your concentration. It certainly wasn't good for Vittorio's, and you can't hold up the pressure on a spell like he'd been using without concentration. There was a sudden surge of particularly intense discomfort through the spell as Vittorio's physical trauma sent a flare of energy through it like feedback on an enormous speaker. The ghouls howled in agonized reaction to the surge of discord, and it gave me a second or so to act. I lashed out with both legs and got Vittorio in one of his knees, the one that wasn't all burned. A kick to the knees doesn't bother a vampire from the Red Court. Their actual knees are all backward anyway. A Black Court vampire wouldn't have been anything but annoyed at having a hand blown off with a shotgun. Vito wasn't either. When he wasn't drawing upon the power gained from his hunger, he was pretty much human. And while I'm a wizard and all, I'm also a fairly big guy. Tall and skinny, sure, but when you get tall enough, even skinny guys are pretty darned heavy, and I've got strong legs. His knee bent in backward and he fell with a scream. Before he could recover, I was up on one knee with a shotgun stock against my shoulder and its long barrel against Vittorio's nose. Back off! I shouted. I was going for cool and strong, but my voice came out sounding angry and not overly burdened with sanity. Tell them to back off! Now! Vittorio's face was twisted with surprise and pain. He blinked at the shotgun, then at me, and then at the stump of his right hand. I couldn't hear or see the stopwatch anymore, but my head provided the sound effect. Tick, 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 tick. How much time was left? Less than sixty seconds? Around me, the ghouls, recovered from their moment of pain, began to let out a steady low growl, like the rumbling engines of several dozen motorcycles. I kept my eyes focused on their boss. If I took a moment to get a good look at all the bits of feral anatomy around me that might start ripping into my flesh at any second, I would probably cry. That would be unmanly. B-back! Vittorio stammered. Then he said something in a language that sounded vaguely familiar, but that I didn't understand. He repeated it in a half-scream, and the ghouls edged a couple of inches away from us. Tick, 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 tick. This is what happens, I told Vittorio. I take my people. I go through the gate. I close it. You get to live. I leaned into the shotgun a little, making him flinch. Or we can all go down together. 
I'm feeling ambivalent toward which way we go, so I'll leave it up to you. He licked his lips. You... you're bluffing. Pull that trigger, and the ghouls will kill everyone. You won't... L let them die for the pleasure of killing me. It's been a long day. I'm tired, not thinking real clearly. And the way I see it, you got me pretty much dead to rights here, Vito. I narrowed my eyes and spoke very quietly. Do you really think I'll let myself go down without taking you with me? He stared at me for a long moment and licked his lips. G go, he said then. Go. Thomas! I shouted. Wakey, wakey! Now is not the time to lie down and die! I heard my brother groan. Harry? Lara, can you hear me? Quite, she said. Thomas's older sister was already on her feet from the sound, and her voice was coming from close behind me. Thomas, get Marcone and get him through the gate. I gave Vittorio a fierce glare. Don't move. Don't even twitch. Vittorio, his face in agony, held up his left hand, fingers spread. He was bleeding a lot and started shivering. There wasn't any fight left in his face. He'd hit me with his best shot, and I'd apparently shrugged it off. I think it had scared the hell out of him. Losing his hand hadn't helped his morale any either. Don't shoot, he said. Just don't shoot. He shot a glance around at the ghouls and said, L Let them go. I heard Marcone let out a groan, and Thomas grunted with effort. Okay, Thomas said from behind me. I'm through. I kept the gun on Vittorio and stood up, trying not to let the barrel waver. How many seconds did I have left? Thirty? Twenty? I've heard about people who can keep track of wild situations like this while keeping a steady count, but apparently I wasn't one of them. I took a step back and felt Lara's back pressing against mine. From the corner of my eye, I could see that the ghouls had spread out all around us. If she hadn't been there, one of them could have blindsided me without any trouble the second I was a couple of feet away from Vittorio. Gulp. I took a step back, forcing myself to move smoothly, steadily, when my instincts were screaming at me to run. Three more steps, Lara told me in a whisper. A little more to your left. I corrected the direction of my next step, trusting her word. One step more, and I could hear winter wind sighing behind me. Silver moonlight shone on the barrel of the shotgun. And then I found out whether or not Cowl was actually there. There was a surge of power, an abrasive scream against my arcane senses, and the offspring of a comet and a pterodactyl came hurtling out of the darkness at the far end of the cavern. My eyes had adjusted enough to see a dim oval of reddish light that outlined a heavily cloaked figure, Cowl, standing in his own gate. Master! Vittorio cried, his voice slurred. Look out! I screamed and thrashed behind me with my arm as I ducked and lurched to one side, trying to sweep Lara out of the flying thing's path as I did. It missed us by inches, but we got out of the way. Cowl's leathery, rasping voice hissed something in a slithering tongue, and a second surge of power lashed invisibly across the cavern, not at us, but at my gate. 
and as quickly as that, my gate began to close, the opening sewing itself shut like a Ziploc bag, starting with the end closest to me. Tick, 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 tick. The gate was closing far more quickly than I could have gotten up and moved. I wasn't getting out, but Lara might. Lara! I shouted. Go! Something with the strength of a freight train and the speed of an Indy car seized my duster and hauled on it so hard that it wrenched my neck and nearly dislocated my arms. Dresden! called Marcone's voice from the closing gate. Nineteen! I hurtled through the air. Looking wildly around showed me that Lara had seized me and leapt for the far end of the collapsing gate. Eighteen! came Marcone's shout. Lara and I flew through empty and unremarkable air. The gate had closed. We missed it. Chapter 42 The only light was the dim scarlet glow from Cowell's gate, and everything had become blood and shadows. The eyes of dozens of ghouls burned like nearly dead coals as they turned toward us, reflecting that lurid luminescence. Lara, I hissed. This cavern goes up in seventeen seconds, and there are ghouls in the tunnel out. Empty night, Lara swore. Her voice was thready with pain and fear. What can I do? Good question. There had to be... Wait. There might be a way to survive this. I was too tired to work any magic, but... You can trust me, I said. That's what you can do. She turned her pale, beautiful, gore-spattered face to me. Done. Get us to the tunnel's mouth. But if there are ghouls there already... Hey, I said. Tick, tick. Before I'd gotten to the end of the first tick, Lara had seized me again and hauled us across the floor to the mouth of the tunnel. Behind me, Cowell was shouting something, and so was Vittorio, and the ghouls set up a howl and were running after us. Only one of the ghouls was close enough to get in the way, but Lara's wicked little wavy-bladed sword ripped straight across its eyes and left the monster momentarily stunned with pain. Lara dumped me at the mouth of the tunnel, and I took a couple of steps back in, checking the smooth tunnel walls as I shook out my shield bracelet. That demonic flying thing of cowls banked around for another pass. What now? Lara demanded. The ghouls were coming. They were nowhere near as fast as Lara had been, but they weren't far away. I took a deep breath. Now, I said, kiss me. I know it seems weird. Lara let out a single ravenous snarl and was abruptly pressed up against me, arms sliding around my waist with sinuous serpentine power. Her mouth met mine and... Oh my God. Lara had once boasted that she could do more to me in an hour than a mortal woman could in a week. But it ain't boasting if it's true. The first searing second of that kiss was indescribably intense. It wasn't simply the texture of her lips. It was how she moved them, and the simple naked hunger beneath every quiver of her mouth. I knew she was a monster, and I knew she would enslave and kill me if she could. But she wanted me with a passion so pure and focused that it was intoxicating. That succubus kiss was a lie, but it made me feel, within that single moment, strong and masculine and powerful. It made me feel that I was attractive enough 
strong enough, worthy enough to deserve that kind of desire. And it made me feel lust, a primal need for sex so raw, so scorching, that I felt sure that if I didn't find expression for that need, here and now, I would surely go insane. The fires that surged up in me weren't limited to my loins. It was simply too hot, too intense for that, and my whole body felt suddenly aflame with need. Every inch of me was suddenly supernaturally aware of Lara, in all her blood-soaked sensuality, in all her wanton desirability, pressed against me, the most transparent white silk of her gown doing less to conceal her nudity than the black blood of her foes. Now, my body screamed at me. Take her, now! Fuck the stopwatch and the bombs and the monsters. Forget everything and feel her and nothing else. It was a close thing, but I held back enough to keep from forgetting the danger. The lust nearly killed me, but lust is an emotion too. I embraced that lust, allowed it to enfold me, and returned the kiss with nearly total abandon. I slid my right hand around the succubus's waist and down, pulling her hips hard against me, feeling the amazing strength and elasticity and rondure of her body on mine. With my left hand, I extended the shield bracelet toward the cavern, the bombs, the onrushing ghouls, and I fed that tidal force of lust through it, building up the energy I would need, some part of me shaping and directing it even as the rest of me concentrated on the mind-consuming pleasure of that single kiss. The clocks stopped ticking. The explosives went off. Cleverness, determination, treachery, ruthlessness, courage, and skill took a leave of absence while physics took over the show. Tremendous heat and force expanded from the explosives. It swept through the cavern in an almighty sword of fire, laying low anything unfortunate enough to have remained within. I saw, for one flash second, the outline of the ghouls, still charging us, unaware of what was about to happen, against the white-hot fireball that expanded through the chamber. And then that blast hit my shield. I didn't try to withstand that incredible sledgehammer of expanding force and energy. It would have shattered my shield, melted my bracelet to my wrist, and crushed me like an egg. The shield wasn't meant to do that. Instead, I filled the space at the mouth of the cave with flexible, resilient energy and packed layer upon layer of it behind the shield and more of it all around us. I wasn't trying to stop the energy of the explosion. I was trying to catch it. There was an instant of crushing compression, and I felt the pressure on my shield like a vast and liquid weight. It flung me from my feet, and I held hard to Lara, whose arms gripped me in return. I began to tumble, blinded by the flame, and fought to hold the shield, now hardening it all around us into a sphere, constricting it around us, until we were pressed body to body. We hurtled up the tunnel, flung out ahead of the explosion like a ship ahead of a hurricane, or more accurately, like a ball being fired down the barrel of a long, stony musket. The shield banged against the smooth walls, dragging more effort out of me. A single outcropping might have stopped our progress for a disastrous instant, shattering stone, shield, succubus, and Seamus into one big mess. 
Thank God the vanity of Lara's family had made sure the walls of the tunnel were polished smooth and gleaming. I didn't see the ghouls guarding the upper reaches of the tunnel so much as I felt them hit the shield and be smashed aside and splattered like bugs, only to be consumed by the flood of fire washing up the tunnel after us. I don't know how fast we were going, beyond very. The explosion flung us up the long tunnel and out into the night air and up through the branches of a couple of trees, which shattered under the force. Then we were arcing through the night, spinning, with stars above us, whipping by, and a long tongue of angry flame emerging from the entrance to the deeps below. And all the while, I was locked in the heated ecstasy of Lara's kiss. I lost track of what was happening somewhere near the top of the ark, right about when Lara's legs twined with mine and she ripped aside my shirt and hers to press her naked chest against me. I had just begun wondering what it was I'd forgotten, about how kissing Lara was not the best idea, when there was a horrible crashing sound that went on for several seconds. We weren't moving. The shield wasn't under pressure, and I was so dizzy and tired that I couldn't string two thoughts together. I lowered the shield with a groan of relief that was lost in an answering moan of need from the succubus in my arms. Stopped, I said. Lara, stop. She pressed closer, parted my lips with her tongue, and I thought that I was going to explode when she suddenly let out a hiss and recoiled from me, a hand flying to her mouth, but not before I saw the blisters rising from the burned flesh around her lips. I fell slowly to my back and lay there gasping in the near dark. There were several small fires nearby. We were in a building of some kind. There were a lot of broken things. I was sure to get blamed for this one. Lara turned away from me, huddling in upon herself. Bloody hell, she said after a moment. I can't believe you're still protected, but it's old. My intelligence said Ms. Rodriguez hadn't left South America. She hasn't, I croaked. You mean? She turned and blinked at me, astonishment on her face. Dresden? Do you mean to say that the last time you had relations with a woman was nearly four years ago? Depressing, I said, isn't it? Lara shook her head slowly. I had just always assumed that you and Ms. Murphy, I grunted. No, she, she doesn't want to get serious with me. And you don't want to be casual with her, Lara said. There's an outside chance that I have abandonment issues, I said. Still, a man like you, and it's been four years, she shook her head. I have enormous personal respect for you, wizard, but that's just sad. I grunted again, too tired to lip off. Saved my life just now, I suppose. Lara looked back at me for a moment, and then she turned pink. Yes, it probably did and I owe you an apology. For trying to eat me, I said. She shivered, and the tips of her breasts suddenly stood out against the white silk. She'd rearranged her clothes to cover them. I was too tired to feel more than a little disappointed about it. Yes, she said, for losing control of myself. I confess, I thought that we were facing our last moment. I'm afraid I didn't restrain myself very well. For that, you have my apologies. 
I looked around and realized dimly that we were in some part of the Wraith Chateau itself. Huh. I'm, uh, sorry about the damage to your home here. Under the circumstances, I'm inclined to be gracious. You saved my life. You could have saved yourself, I said quietly. When the gate was closing, you could have left me to die. You didn't. Thank you. She blinked at me, as if I had just started speaking in alien tongues. Wizard, she said after a moment, I gave you my word of safe passage. A member of my court betrayed you, betrayed us all. I could not leave you to die without forsaking my word, and I take my promises seriously, Mr. Dresden. I stared quietly at her for a moment and then nodded. Then I said, I noticed that you didn't go terribly far out of your way to save Cesarina Malvora. Her lips twitched up at the corners. It was a difficult time. I did all that I could to protect my house and then the other members of court in attendance. More's the pity that I could not save that usurping, traitorous bitch. You couldn't save that usurping, traitorous Lord Scavis either, I noted. Life is change, Lara replied quietly. You know what I think, Lara? I asked. Her eyes narrowed and fastened on me. I think someone got together with Scavis to plan his little hunt for the low-powered magic folks. I think someone encouraged him to do it. I think someone pointed it out as a great plan to usurp mean old Lord Wraith's power base. And then I think that same someone probably nudged Lady Malvora to move, to give her a chance to steal Lord Scavis's thunder. Lara's eyelids lowered and her lips spread in a slow smile. Why would someone do such a thing? Because she knew that Scavis and Malvora were going to make a move soon in any case. I think she did it to divide her enemies and focus their efforts into a plan she could predict rather than waiting upon their ingenuity. I think someone wanted to turn Scavis and Malvora against one another, keeping them too busy to undermine Wraith. I sat up, faced her, and said, It was you, pulling their strings. It was you who came up with the plan to kill those women. Perhaps not, Lara replied smoothly. Lord Scavis is, was, a well-known misogynist, and he proposed a plan much like this one only a century ago. She tapped a finger to her lips thoughtfully and then said, and you have no way of proving otherwise. I stared at her for a long moment. Then I said, I don't need proof to act on my own. Is that a threat, dear wizard? I looked slowly around the ruined room. There was a hole in the house, almost perfectly round, right through the floors above us and the roof four stories above. Bits and pieces were still falling. What threat could I possibly be to you, Lara? I drawled. She took in a slow breath and said, What makes you think I won't kill you right here, right now, while you are weary and weakened? It would likely be intelligent and profitable. She lifted her sword and ran a fingertip languidly down the flat of the blade. Why not finish you right here? I showed her my teeth. You gave me your word of safe passage. Lara threw back her head in a rich laugh. <laughs> so I did. She faced me more directly, set the sword aside, and rose. What do you want? 
I want those people returned to life. I spat at her. I want to undo all the pain that's been inflicted during this mess. I want children to get their mothers back, parents, their daughters, husbands, their wives. I want you and your kind never to hurt anyone ever again. Right in front of my eyes, she turned from a woman into a statue, cold and perfectly still. What do you want, she whispered, that I might give you? First, reparations. A were-guild to the victims' families, I said. I'll provide you with the details for each. Done. Second, this never happens again. One of yours starts up with genocide again, and I'm going to reply in kind, starting with you. I'll have your word on it. Her eyes narrowed further. Done, she murmured. The little folk, I said. They shouldn't be in cages. Free them, unharmed, in my name. She considered that for a moment, and then nodded. Anything else? Some Listerine, I said. I got a funny taste in my mouth. That last remark drew more anger out of her than anything else that had happened the entire night. Her silver eyes blazed with rage, and I could feel the fury roiling around her. Our business, she said in a whisper, is concluded. Get out of my house. I forced myself to my feet. One of the walls had fallen down, and I walked creakily over to it. My neck hurt. I guess being moved around at inhuman speed gives you whiplash. I stopped at the hole in the wall and said, forcing the words out, I'm glad to preserve the peace effort. I think it's going to save lives, Lara. Your people's lives, and mine. I've got to have you where you are to get that. I looked at her. Otherwise, I'd settle up with you right now. Don't get to thinking we're friends. She faced me, her face all shadowed, the light of slowly growing fires lighting her from behind. I am glad to see you survived, wizard. You who destroyed my father and secured my own power. You who have now destroyed my enemies. You are the most marvelous weapon I have ever wielded. She tilted her head at me. And I love peace, wizard. I love talking. Laughing, relaxing. Her voice dropped to a husky pitch. I will kill your folk with peace, wizard. I will strangle them with it, and they will thank me while I do. A cold little spear slid neatly into my guts, but I didn't let it show on my face or in my voice. Not while I'm around, I said quietly. Then I turned and walked away from the house. I looked blearily around me, got my directions, and started limping for the front gate. On the way there, I fumbled Mouse's whistle out of my pocket and started blowing it. I remember my dog reaching my side and holding on to his collar the last fifty yards or so down the road out, until Molly came sputtering up in the blue beetle and helped me inside. Then I collapsed into sleep. I'd earned it. Chapter 43 I didn't wake up until I was back home, and then only long enough to shamble inside and fall down on my bed. 
I was out for maybe six hours, and then I woke up with my whole back fused into one long, enormous muscle cramp. I made some involuntary pathetic noises, and Mouse rose up from the floor beside my bed and jogged out of my room. Molly appeared from the living room a moment later and said, Harry, what's wrong? Back, I said. My back. Freaking vampire tart wrenched my neck. Molly nodded once and vanished. When she came back, she had a small black bag. You were holding yourself sort of strangely last night. So after I dropped you off, I borrowed Mother's medicine bag. She held up a bottle. Muscle relaxants. A jar. Tiger bomb. She held up a plastic container of dust. Herbal tea mix Shiro found in Tibet. Great for joint pain. My father swears by it. Padawan, I said. I'm doubling your pay. You don't pay me, Harry. Tripling it, then. She gave me a broad smile. And I'll be happy to get you all set up just as soon as you promise to tell me everything that happened. That you can, I mean. Oh, and Sergeant Murphy called. She wanted to know as soon as you were awake. Give her a ring, I said. And of course I'll tell you about it. Is there any water? She went and got me some, but I needed her help to sit up enough to drink it. That was embarrassing as hell. I got more embarrassed when she took my shirt off with a clinical detachment and then winced at all the bruises. She fed me the muscle relaxants and set to with a tiger bomb, and it hurt like hell, for about ten minutes. Then the stuff started working, and the knot pain was a drug of its own. After a nice cup of tea, which tasted horrible, but which made it possible to move my neck within ten or twenty minutes of drinking it, I was able to get myself into the shower and get cleaned up and into fresh clothes. It was heavenly. Nothing like a nightmarish, near-death experience to make you appreciate the little things in life, like cleanliness and not being dead. I spent a minute giving Mister some attention, though apparently he'd slept with Molly, because he accepted maybe a whole thirty seconds of stroking and then dismissed me as unnecessary once he was sure I was in one piece. Normally he needs some time spread across someone's lap to be himself. I ruffled Mouse for a while instead, which he enjoyed dutifully, and then got myself some food and sat down in the chair across from Molly on the couch. Sergeant Murphy's on the way, Molly reported. Good, I told her quietly. So, tell me about it. You first. She gave me a semi-exasperated look and started talking. I sat in the car being invisible for maybe an hour. Mouse kept me company. Nothing much happened. Then bells started ringing and men started shouting and shooting and the lights went out. A few minutes later, there was a great big explosion. It moved the rearview mirror out of position. Then Mouse started making noise like you said he would, and we drove to the gate and he jumped out of the car and came back with you. I blinked at her for a minute. That sounds really boring. But scary, Molly said. Very tense. She took a deep breath and said, I had to throw up twice, just sitting there. I was so nervous. I don't know if, if I'm going to be cut out for this kind of thing, Harry. Thank God, I said. You're sane. I took a few more bites of food and then said, But I need to know how much you want to know. Molly blinked and leaned toward me a little. What? There's a lot I can tell you, I said. Some of it is just business. Some of it is going to be dangerous for you to know about. 
It might even obligate you in ways you wouldn't like very much. So you won't tell me that part? she asked. Didn't say that, I said. I'm willing, but some of this stuff you'd be safer and happier not knowing. I don't want to endanger you or trap you into feeling you have to act without giving you a choice about it. Molly stared at me for a minute while I gobbled cereal. Then she frowned, looked down at her hands for a minute, and said, Maybe just tell me what you think is best for now. Good answer, I said quietly. And I told her about the white court, about the challenge and the duel, about Vittorio's betrayal and how he gated in the ghouls, and how I'd had my own backup standing by in the never-never. What? Molly said. How did you do that? Thomas, I said. He's a vampire, and they have the ability to cross into the never-never at certain places. What kind of places? Molly asked. Places that are, um, I said, important to them, relevant to them in a particular way. Places of lust, you mean, Molly said. I coughed and ate more cereal. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, places where significant things have happened to them. In Thomas's case, he was nearly sacrificed by a cult of porn star sorceresses in those caves a few years ago. I'm sorry, Molly said, interrupting. But it sounded like you said, cult of porn star sorceresses. Yeah, I said. Oh, she said, giving me a skeptical look. Sorry, Dan. Keep going. Anyway, he nearly died there, so I knew he could find it again. He led Marcone and Murphy there, and they were camped out, waiting for me to open a gate. I see, Molly said. And you all ganged up on this Vittorio guy and killed him? Not quite, I said. And told her what happened, leaving out any mention of Lashiel or Cowl. Molly blinked as I finished. Well, that explains it then. Explains what? There were all kinds of little lights going by the windows all night. They didn't upset Mouse. I thought maybe it was some kind of sending, and figured the wards would keep it out. She shook her head. It must have been all the little fairies. They hang around all the time anyway, I said. It just takes a lot of them before it's obvious enough to notice. I chewed Cheerios thoughtfully. More mouths to feed. Guess I better call Pizza Express and step up my standing order, or we'll have some kind of teeny fairy clan war over pizza rights on our hands. I finished breakfast, found my back stiffening again after sitting still, and was stretching out a little when Murphy arrived. She was still in her party clothes from the night before, complete with a loaded backpack. After kneeling down to give Mouse his hug, she surprised me. I got one, too. I surprised myself with how hard I hugged back. Molly occasionally displayed wisdom beyond her years. She did now, taking my car keys, showing them to me, and departing without a word firmly shutting the door behind her. Glad you're okay, I told Murphy. Yeah, she said. Her voice shook a little, even on that one word, and she took a deep breath and spoke more clearly. That was fairly awful, even by your usual standards. You made it out all right? Nothing I won't get over, I told her. You had any breakfast? Don't think my stomach is up for much after all that, she said. I have Cheerios, I said, as if I've been saying dark chocolate caramel almond fudge custard. Oh, God, Murphy sighed. How can I resist? We sat down on the couch with Murphy's heavy bag on the coffee table. 
Murphy snacked on dry Cheerios from a bowl with her fingers. Okay, I told her. First things first. Where's my gun? Murphy snorted and nodded at her bag. I got in and opened it. My forty-four was inside. So was Murphy's boxy little submachine gun. I picked it up and eyed it, then lifted it experimentally to my shoulder. What the hell kind of gun is this? It's a P-90, Murphy said. See-through plastic? I asked. That's the magazine, she said. You can always see how many rounds you have left. I grunted. It's tiny. On a hyperthyroid stork like you, sure, Murphy said. I frowned and said, Full automatic. Ah, is this weapon precisely legal, even for you? She snorted. No. Where'd you get it? I asked. Kincaid, she said. Last year, gave it to me in a box of Belgian chocolate. I took the weapon down from my shoulder, flipped it over, and eyed a little engraved plate on the butt. We'll always have Hawaii. I read aloud. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Murphy's cheeks turned pink. She took the gun from me, put it in the bag, and zipped it firmly closed. Did we ever decide who blew up my car? Probably Madrigal, I said. You stood him up for that cup of coffee, remember? Because he was busy kidnapping you and attempting to sell you on eBay, Murphy said. I shrugged. Vindictive doesn't equal rational. Murphy frowned, the suspicious cop look on her face, something I was long used to seeing. Maybe, but it doesn't feel right. He liked his vengeance personal. Who, then? I asked. Vittorio wasn't interested in drawing out the cops. Neither was Lord Scavis's agent. Lara Wraith and Marcone don't do bombs. Exactly, Murphy said. If not Madrigal, then who? Life is a mystery, I suggested. It was probably Madrigal. Maybe one of the others had a reason for it that we don't know. Maybe we'll never know. Yeah, she said. I hate that. She shook her head. Harry, wouldn't a decent human being be inquiring after his wounded friends and allies about now? I assumed if there was bad news, you'd have told me already, I said. She gave me a steady look. That, she said, is so archetypically male. I grinned. How is everyone? Ramirez is in the hospital, same floor as Elaine, actually, and we're watching them both, unofficially, of course. We, meaning the cops, Murphy, good people. How is he? Still had some surgery to go when I left, but the doctor said his prognosis was excellent, as long as they can avoid infection. He got his guts opened up by that knife. That can always be tricky. I grunted and had my suspicions about where Molly had gone when she borrowed my car. He'll make it. What about that poor no-neck you abused? Mr. Hendricks is there with two of those mercenaries. Marcone has some of his people guarding them, too. Cops and robbers, I said. One big, happy family. One wonders, Murphy said, why Marcone agreed to help. I settled back on the couch and rubbed at the back of my neck with one hand, closing my eyes. I bribed him. With what? Murphy asked. A seat at the table, I said quietly. Huh? I offered Marcone a chance to sign on to the Unseelie Accords as a freeholding lord. Murphy was quiet for a moment, and then she said, He wants to keep expanding his power. She thought about it a minute more and said, Or he thinks his power might be threatened from someone on that end. 
Someone like the vampires, I said. The Red Court had de facto control of prostitution in Chicago until Bianca's place burned down, and an agent of the White Court has just shown up and killed one of his prostitutes. Are we sure it was Madrigal? I am, I said. No way to prove it, but he was the wraith involved in this mess. That was more or less an accident, Murphy said. Taking out one of Marcone's people, I mean. She's just as dead, I replied. And Marcone won't stand by when someone, anyone, kills one of his own. How does becoming a... What was it? And how does it help? Freeholding Lord, I said. It means he's entitled to rights under the Accords. Like rights of challenge when someone kills his employees. It means that if a supernatural power tries to move in on him, he'll have an opportunity to fight it and actually win. Are there many of these lords? Nope, I said. I had Bob look into it, maybe twenty on the whole planet. Two dragons, Dracul, the original, not baby Vlad. The Archive, the CEO of Monarch Securities, some kind of semi-immortal shapeshifter guru in the Ukraine, people like that. The Accords let them sign on as individuals. They have the same rights and obligations. Most people who consider the idea aren't willing to agree to be a good, traditional host for, let's say, a group of black court vampires, and don't want to get caught up as a mediator in a dispute between the major powers. They don't want to make themselves the targets of possible challenges either, so not many of them even try it. I rubbed at my jaw. And no one who is just a vanilla human being has tried it. Marcone is breaking new ground. Murphy shook her head. And you were able to set him up for it? You have to have three current members of the Accords vouch for you to sign on, I said. I told him I'd be one of them. You can speak for the Council in this? When it comes to defending and protecting my area of responsibility as a warden, I damn well can. If the Council doesn't like it, they shouldn't have dragooned me into the job. Murphy chewed on some Cheerios, scrunched up her nose in thought, and then gave me a shrewd look. You're using Marcone. I nodded. It's only a matter of time before someone like Lara Wraith tries to push for more power in Chicago. Sooner or later, they'll swamp me in numbers, and we both know S.I. will always have their hands tied by red tape and politics. If Marcone signs the Accords, he'll have a strong motivation to oppose any incursion, and the means to do so. But he's going to use his new means to secure his position here even more firmly, Murphy said quietly. Make new allies, probably. Gain new resources. Yeah, he's using me too, I shook my head. It isn't a perfect solution. No, Murphy said. It isn't. But he's the devil we know. Neither of us said anything for several minutes. Yes, Murphy admitted. He is. Murphy dropped me off at the hospital and I headed straight for Elaine's room. I found her inside dressing. She was just pulling a pair of jeans up over strong, slender legs that looked just as good as I remembered. When I opened the door, she spun, thorn wand in hand. I put my hands up and said, Easy there, gunslinger. I'm not looking for any trouble. Elaine gave me a gentle glare and slipped the wand into a small leather case that clipped to the jeans. She did not look well, 
but she looked a lot weller than she had the last time I'd seen her. Her face was still quite pale, and her eyes were sunken and bruised, but she moved with brisk purpose for all of that. You shouldn't sneak up on people like that, she said. If I'd knocked, I might have woken you up. If you'd knocked, you'd have missed out on an outside chance of seeing me getting dressed, she shot back. Touché. I glanced around and spotted her bag, all packed. My stomach twisted a little in disappointment. Shouldn't you be in bed? She shook her head. Have you ever tried to watch daytime television? I was glad when the set finally blew. I'd lose my mind just lying here. How are you feeling? A lot better, Elaine said. Stronger. Which is another reason to leave. I don't want to have a nightmare and have my powers kill some poor grandpa's respirator. I nodded. So, it's back to California? Yes. I've done enough damage for one trip. I folded my arms and leaned against the door, watching her brush back her hair enough to get it into a tail. She didn't look at me when she asked, Did you get them? Yeah, I said. She closed her eyes, shivered, and exhaled. Okay, she shook her head. That shouldn't make me feel better. It won't help Anna. It will help a lot of other people in the long run, I said. She abruptly slammed the brush against the rail of the bed, snapping it. I wasn't here trying to help a lot of other people, damn it. She glanced down at the brush's handle and seemed to deflate for a moment. She tossed it listlessly into a corner. I went over to her and put a hand on her shoulder. It's just in. Elaine isn't perfect. News at eleven. She leaned her cheek on my hand. You should know, I said. I got reparations out of the white court. A wear guild for their dependents. She blinked at me. How? My boyish charm. Can you give me contact information for the victims' families? I'll get somebody to get the money to them. Yes, she said. Some of them didn't have any dependents, like Anna. I grunted and nodded. I thought we might use that money to build something. Elaine frowned at me. Oh? I nodded. We use the money. We expand the Ordo, build a network of contacts. A hotline for middle-class practitioners. We contact groups like the Ordo in cities all around the country. We put the word out that if people are in some kind of supernatural fix, they can get word of it onto the network. Maybe if something like this starts happening again, we can hear about it early and stomp on the fire before it grows. We teach self-defense classes. We help people coordinate, cooperate, support one another. We act. Elaine chewed on her lip and looked up at me uncertainly. We? You said you wanted to help people, I said. This might. What do you think? She stood up, leaned up onto her toes, and kissed me gently on the lips before staring into my eyes, her own very wide and bright. I think, she said quietly, that Anna would have liked that. Ramirez woke up late that evening, swathed in bandages, his injured leg in traction, and I was sitting next to his bed when he did. It was a nice switch for me. Usually I was the one waking up into disorientation, confusion, and pain. I gave him a few minutes to get his bearings before I leaned forward and said, Hey there, man. Harry, he rasped. Thirsty. Before he was finished saying it, I picked up a little sports bottle of ice water they'd left next to his bed. 
I put the straw between his lips and said, Can you hold it, or should I do it for you? He managed a small glare, fumbled a hand up, and held onto the bottle weakly. He sipped some of the water, then laid his head back on the pillow. Okay, he said. How bad is it? Alas, I said. You'll live. Where? Hospital, I said. You're stable. I've called Listens to Wind, and he's going to come pick you up in the morning. We win? Bad guys go boom, I said. The White King is still on his throne. Peace process is going to move ahead. Tell me. So I gave him the battle's last few minutes, except for Lash's role in things. Harry Dresden, Ramirez murmured. The human cannonball. Bam, zoom, right to the moon. He smiled a little. You get Cal? Doubt it, I said. He was right by his gate. When he saw me running for the exit, ten to one he just stepped back through it and zipped it shut. In fact, I'm pretty sure he did. If there'd been a gate open there, the blast would have been able to spread into it. I don't think we would have been thrown so far. How about Vito? I shook my head. Vito was pretty far gone, even before the bombs went off. I'm pretty sure we nailed him, and those ghouls, too. Good thing you had that army on standby, huh? Ramirez said, a faint edge to his voice. Hey, I said. It's late. I should let you get some rest. No, Ramirez said, his voice stronger. We need to talk. I sat there for a minute, bracing myself. Then I said, About what? About how tight you are with the vamps, he said. About you making deals with scumbag mobsters? I recognized Marcone. I've seen his picture in the papers. Ramirez shook his head. Jesus Christ, Harry. We're supposed to be on the same team. It's called trust, man. I wanted to spit something hostile and venomous and well-deserved. I toned myself down to saying, Gee, a warden doesn't trust me. That's a switch. Ramirez blinked at me. What? Don't worry about it. I'm used to it, I said. I had Morgan sticking his nose into every corner of my existence for my entire adult life. Ramirez stared at me for a second. Then he let out a weak snort and said, All hail the drama queen. Harry, he shook his head. I'm talking about you not trusting me, man. My increasingly angry retort died unspoken. Uh, what? Ramirez shook his head wearily. Let me make some guesses. One, you don't trust the council. You never have, but lately it's been worse. Especially since New Mexico. You think that whoever is leaking information to the vampires is pretty high up, and the less anyone in the council knows about what you're doing, the better. I stared at him and said nothing. Two, there's a new player in the game. Cowl's on the new team. We don't know who they are, but they seem to have a hard-on for screwing over everyone equally. Vampires, mortals... Wizards, whoever, he sighed. You aren't the only one who's been noticing these things, Harry. I grunted. What do you call them? The Black Hats, after our ring-wraith wannabe buddy Cowl. You? The Black Council, I said. Ooh, Ramirez muttered. Yours is better. Thanks, I said. So you can't trust our own people, he said. But you're cutting deals with the vampires. 
He narrowed his eyes. You think you might be able to find the traitor coming in from the other side? I put my finger on my nose. And the gangster? Ramirez asked. He's a snake, I said, but his word is good. And Madrigal and Vito had killed one of his people. And I know he isn't working for Cowell's organization. How do you know that? Because Marcone works for Marcone. Ramirez spread his hands weakly. Was that so damned hard, Dresden, to talk to me? I settled back in my chair. My shoulders suddenly felt loose and wobbly. I breathed in and out a few times and then said, No. Ramirez snorted gently. Idiot. So, I said, think I should come clean to the Merlin? Ramirez opened one eye. Are you kidding? He hates your guts. He'd have you declared a traitor, locked up and executed before you got through the first paragraph. He closed his eyes again. But I'm with you, man, all the way. You don't have much endurance after going through something like Ramirez had. He was asleep before he realized it was about to happen. I sat with him for the rest of the night, until senior council member Listens to Wind arrived with his team of medical types before dawn the next morning. You don't leave an injured friend all alone. The next day, I knocked on the door to the office at Executive Priority and went in without waiting for an answer. Tonight, you'll be visited by three spirits, I announced. The ghosts of indictment past, present, and future. They will teach you the true meaning of, you are still a scumbag criminal. Marcone was there, sitting behind the desk with Helen Beckett, or maybe Helen Demeter, I supposed. She wore her professionally suggestive business suit and was sitting across Marcone's lap. Her hair and suit looked slightly mussed. Marcone had his third shirt button undone. I cursed my timing. If I'd come ten minutes later, I'd have opened the door in medias race. It would have been infinitely more awkward. Dresden, Marcone said, his tone pleasant. Helen made no move to stir from where she was. It's nice to see you alive. Your sense of humor, of course, remains unchanged, which is unsurprising, as it seems to have died in your adolescence. Presumably it entered a suicide pact with your manners. Your good opinion, I said, means the world to me. I see you got out of the never-never. Simple enough, Marcone said. I had to shoot a few of the vampires once we were clear of the fight. I did not appreciate the way they were attempting to coerce my employees. Hell's bells, I sighed. Did you kill any of them? Unnecessary. I shot them enough to make my point. After that, we had an adequate understanding of one another, much as you and I do. I understand that you settled matters with honest killers, Mr. Dresden, Helen said. With help, of course. Marcone smiled his unreadable little smile at me. The people who did the deed won't be bothering anyone anymore, I said and most of the people who motivated them have gone into early retirement. I glanced at Marcone. With help. But not all of them? Helen asked, frowning. Everyone we could make answer, Marcone said, has answered. It is unlikely we could accomplish more. Something made me say, and I'm taking steps to prevent or mitigate this kind of circumstance in the future, here and elsewhere. Helen tilted her head at me, taking that in. Then she nodded and said, very quietly, Thank you. Helen, 
Marcone said. Would you be so good as to excuse us for a few moments? Won't take long, I added. I don't like being here. Helen smiled slightly at me and rose smoothly from Marcone's lap. If it makes you feel any better, Mr. Dresden, you should know that he dislikes having you here as well. You should see how much my insurance premiums go up after your visits, Dresden. He shook his head. And they call me an extortionist. Helen, could you send Bonnie in with that file? Certainly. Helen left. Healthy brunette Bonnie, in her oh-so-fetching exercise outfit, bounced in with a manila folder, gave me a Colgate smile, and departed again. Marcone opened the folder, withdrew a stack of papers, and started flicking through them. He got to the last page, turned it around, slid it across the desk, and produced a pen from his pocket. Here is the contract you faxed me. Sign here, please. I walked over to the desk, took the entire stack, and started reading it from page one. You never sign a contract you haven't read, even if you aren't a wizard. If you are one, it's even more important than that. People joke about signing away their soul or their firstborn. In my world, it's possible. Marcone seemed to accept that. He made a steeple of his fingers and waited with the relaxed patience of a well-fed cat. The contract was the standard one for approving a new signatory of the Accords, and though he'd had it retyped, Marcone hadn't changed a word. Probably. I kept reading. So you suggested the name Demeter for Helen? I asked as I read. Marcone's expression never changed. Yes. How's Persephone? He stared at me. Persephone, I said. Demeter's daughter. She was carried away by the Lord of the Underworld. Marcone's stare became cold. He kept her there in Hades, but Demeter froze the whole world until the other gods convinced him to return Persephone to her mother. I turned to Paige. The girl, the one in the coma who you're keeping in a hospital somewhere and visiting every week. That's Helen's daughter, isn't it? The one who got caught in the crossfire of one of your shootouts? Marcone didn't move. Newspaper file on it said she was killed, I said. I read several more pages before Marcone answered. Tony Vargasi, my predecessor, I suppose, had a son, Marco. Marco decided that I had become a threat to his standing in the organization. He was the shooter. But the girl, I said, didn't die. Marcone shook his head. It put Vargasi in an awkward position. If the girl recovered, she might identify his son as the shooter, and no jury in the world would fail to send a thug to jail who'd shot a pretty little girl. But if the girl died, and it came back on Marco, he'd be looking at a murder charge. And someone who murders little girls gets the needle in Illinois, I said. Exactly. There was a great deal of corruption at the time. I snorted. Marcone's little smile returned for a moment. Pardon me. Say instead that the Vargasis exerted their influence on official matters with a heavy hand. Vargasi had the little girl declared dead. He convinced the medical examiner to sign false paperwork, and he hid the girl away in another hospital. I grunted. If Marco got identified as the shooter and put up for trial, Vargasi could produce the little girl. Look, she's not dead. Mistrial. One possibility, Marcone replied, 
And if things went quietly for a while, he could simply delete her records. And her, I said. Yes. Whatever happened to old Tony Vargasi? I asked. I saw a flash of Marcone's teeth. His whereabouts are unknown, as are Marco's. When did you find out about the girl? Two years later, he said. Everything was set up through a dummy corporation's trust fund. She could have just... He looked away from me. Just laying there, indefinitely. No one would have known who she was, known her name. Does Helen know? I asked him. He shook his head. He was quiet for a moment more. I can't return Persephone from Hades. The child's death almost destroyed Helen, and her world is still frozen. If she knew her daughter was trapped, just lying there in a half-life, he shook his head. It would shatter her world, Dresden. And I shouldn't wish that. I've noticed, I said quietly, that most of the young ladies working here would be about the same age as her daughter. Yes, Marcone said. That isn't exactly a healthy recovery. No, Marcone said. But it's what she has. I thought about it while I kept reading. Maybe Helen deserved to know about her daughter. Hell, she probably did. But whatever else Marcone was, he was no fool. If he thought news of her daughter's fate might shatter Helen, he was probably right. Sure, she should know. But did I have the right to make that decision? Probably not. Even if Marcone wouldn't do his best to have me killed if I tried. Hell, I probably had less right to decide than Marcone. He had way more invested in the girl and her fate than I did because that was the secret I'd seen in a soul gaze with gentleman Johnny Marcone years ago, the secret that gave him the strength and the will to rule the mean streets. He felt responsible for the little girl who'd taken a bullet meant for him. He'd taken over Chicago crime with ruthless efficiency, always cutting down on the violence. A couple of people had been hurt in gang-related crimes. The gangsters responsible hadn't been heard from again. I'd always assumed it was because Marcone had decided to manipulate matters, to make himself appear to be a preferable alternative to more careless criminals who might take his place if the cops took him down. I'd never even considered the idea that he might actually give a crap about innocence being harmed. Granted, that didn't change anything. He still ran a business that killed far more people than any amount of collateral damage. He was still a criminal, still a bad guy. But he was the devil I knew, and he probably could have been worse. I got to the last page of the contract and found spaces for three signatures. Two of them were already filled. Donar Vaderung? I asked Marcone. Current CEO of Monarch Securities, Marcone replied. Oslo. And Lara Wraith? I murmured. Signing on behalf of her father, the White King, who is obviously in charge of the White Court. There was a trace of irony in Marcone's voice. He hadn't been fooled by the puppet show. I looked at the third open line. Then I signed it and left without another word. It isn't a perfect world. I'm doing the best I can. Hmm, said Bob the Skull, peering at my left hand. It looks like... I was sitting in my lab, my hand spread open on the table, while the Skull examined my palm. 
I'd worn a mark there for years, an unblemished patch of skin amidst all the burn scars, in the perfect shape of the angelic sigil that was Lashiel's name. The mark was gone. In its place was just an irregular patch of unburned skin. It looks like there's no mark there anymore, Bob said. I sighed. Thank you, Bob, I said. It's good to have a professional opinion. Well, what did you expect, Bob said. The skull swiveled around on the table and tilted up to look at my face. Hmm. And you say the entity isn't responding to you anymore? No, and she's always jumped every time I said frog. Interesting, Bob said. What's that supposed to mean? Well, from what you told me, this psychic attack the entity blocked for you was quite severe. I shivered, remembering. Yeah. And the process she used to accelerate your brain and shield you was traumatic as well. Right. She said it could cause me brain damage. Uh-huh, Bob said. I think it did. Huh? See what I mean, Bob said cheerfully. You're thicker already. Harry, get hammer, I said. Smash stupid talkie skull. For a guy with no legs, Bob backpedals swiftly and gracefully. Easy there, chief. Don't get excited. But the brain damage thing is for real. I frowned. Explain, please. Well, I told you that the entity in your head was like a recording of the real Lashiel, right? Yeah. That recording was written in your brain, in portions you weren't using. Right. I think that's where the damage is. I mean, I'm looking at you right now, and your head has been riddled with tiny holes, boss. I blinked and rubbed my fingers over my scalp. It doesn't feel like that. That's because your brain doesn't sense injuries. It manages sensing injuries for the rest of you. But trust me, there's damage. I think it wiped out the entity. Wiped out? You mean like, killed it, Bob said. Technically, it was never alive, but it was constructed. It's been deconstructed, and... I frowned. And what? And there's, uh, a portion of you missing. I'm sure I would have felt that, I said. Not your body, Bob said scornfully. Your life force, your chi, your soul. Whoa, wait a minute. Part of my soul is gone? Bob sighed. People get all excited when you use that word. The part of you that is more than merely physical, yes. You can call it whatever you want. There's some missing, and it's nothing to panic over. Part of my soul is gone, and I'm not supposed to be worried about that? I demanded. Happens all the time, Bob said. You shared a bunch of yours with Susan, and she with you. It's what protected you from Laura Wraith. You and Murphy swapped some pretty recently, looks like. You must have gotten a hug or something. Honestly, Harry, you really ought to bang her and get it over with. I reached under the work table, drew out a claw hammer, and gave Bob a pointed look. Um, right, he said. Back to business. Uh, your soul. You give away pieces of yourself all the time. Everyone does. Some of it goes out with your magic, too. It grows back. Relax, boss. If it's no big deal, I said, then why is it so interesting? Oh, well, Bob said. It is energy, you know. And I wonder if maybe... Maybe. Well, look, Harry, there was a tiny bit of Lashiel's energy in you, 
supporting the entity, giving you access to hellfire. That's gone now, but the entity had to have some kind of power source to turn against the essence of its own originator. So it was running off my soul? Like I'm some kind of battery? Hey, Bob said, don't get all righteous. You gave it to her, encouraging her to make her own choices, to rebel, to exercise free will. Bob shook his head. Free will is horrible, Harry. Believe me. I'm glad I don't have it. Ugh, no, thank you. But you gave her some. You gave her a name. The will came with it. I was quiet for a moment, then said, And she used it to kill herself. Sort of, Bob said. She chose which areas of your brain were going to take the worst beating. She took a psychic bullet for you. I guess it's almost the same thing as choosing to die. No, it isn't, I said quietly. She didn't choose to die. She chose to be free. Maybe that's why they call it free will, Bob said. Hey, tell me that at least you got a pony ride before the carnival left town. I mean, she could have made you see and feel anything at all, and... Bob paused and his eye lights blinked. Hey, Harry, are you crying? No, I snapped and left the lab. The apartment felt very empty. I sat down with my guitar and tried to sort out my thoughts. It was hard. I was feeling all kinds of anger and confusion and sadness. I kept telling myself that it was the emotional fallout of Malvora's psychic assault, but it's one thing to repeat that to yourself over and over, and quite another to sit there feeling awful. I started playing. Beautifully. It wasn't perfect performance. A computer can do that. It wasn't a terribly complex bit of music. My fingers didn't suddenly regain their complete dexterity, but the music became alive. My hands moved with a surety and confidence I usually felt only in bursts a few seconds long. I played a second piece, and then a third, and every time my rhythm was on, and I found myself seeing and using new nuances, variations on chords that lent depth and color to the simple pieces I could play, sweet sadness to the minor chords, power to the majors, stresses and resolutions I'd always heard in my head, but could never express in life. It was almost like someone had opened a door in my head, like they were helping me along. I heard a very, very faint whisper, like an echo of Lash's voice. Everything I can, dear host. I played for a while longer, before gently setting aside my guitar. Then I went to call Father Fordhill and tell him to come over, so that he could pick up the blackened denarius as soon as I dug it out of my basement. I picked up Thomas outside his apartment and tailed him as he crossed town. He took the L over toward the loop and hit the sidewalks again. He looked tense and paler than usual. He'd blown an awful lot of energy killing those ghouls, and I knew he'd have to feed, maybe dangerously, to recover what he'd lost. I'd called him the day after the battle and tried to talk to him, but he'd remained reticent, remote. I'd told him I was worried about him. After blowing that much energy, he'd hung up on me. He'd cut short two more calls since. 
So, being as how I am a smart and sensitive guy who respects his brother's feelings, I was tailing him to find out what the hell he was trying so hard not to talk to me about. This way, I was sparing him all the effort and trouble of telling me about it by finding out all on my own. Like I said, I'm sensitive. And thoughtful. And maybe a little stubborn. Thomas wasn't being very careful. I would have expected him to move around the city like a long-tailed cat at a rocking chair convention. But he sort of trudged along, fashionable in his dark slacks and loose, deep crimson shirt, his hands in his pockets, his hair hiding his face most of the time. Even so, he attracted more than a little feminine attention. He was like a walking, talking cologne commercial, except that even silent and standing, he was making women look over their shoulders at him, while coyly rearranging their hair. He finally stalked into the park tower and went into a trendy little boutique-slash-coffee shop calling itself the Coiffier Cup. I checked a clock and thought about following him in. I could see a few people inside, where a coffee bar backed up to the front window. A couple of fairly pretty girls were getting things set up behind the counter, but I couldn't see any more than that. I found a spot where I could watch the door and loomed unobtrusively which is easier than you'd think, even when you're as tall as I am. A couple of women, whose hair and nails screamed beautician, came in later. The boutique opened for business a few minutes after Thomas got there and immediately began doing brisk trade. A lot of evidently wealthy, terribly attractive, generally young women started coming and going. It put me in a quandary. On the one hand, I didn't want anyone to get hurt because my brother had exerted himself so furiously on my behalf. On the other hand, I didn't particularly care to go in and find my brother lording it over a room full of worshipful women like some dark god of lust and shadow. I chewed on my lip for a while and decided to go in. If Thomas had... If he had become the kind of monster his family generally did, I owed it to him to try to talk some sense into him or pounded in, whichever. I pushed open the door to the coffee cup and was immediately pleasantly assaulted by the aroma of coffee. There was techno music playing, thumping bouncily and mindlessly positive. The front room contained a coffee bar, a few little tables, and a little podium next to a heavy curtain. Even as I came in, one of the young women behind the bar came out to me, gave me a bubbly, caffeinated smile, and said, Hi! Do you have an appointment? No, I said, glancing back at the curtains. Uh, I just need to talk to someone. One second. Sir, she said in protest and tried to hurry into my path. My legs were longer. I gave her a smile and outdistanced her, pushing the curtain aside. The techno music grew a little louder as I went through. The back room of the boutique smelled the way boutiques always do, of various tonsorial chemicals. A dozen styling stations, all in use, stood six on a side, marching up to a rather large and elaborate station on a little raised platform. At the base of the little platform was a pedicure station, and a young woman with a mud mask and cucumber slices and a body posture of blissful relaxation was lounging through a pedicure. On the other side, another young woman was under a dryer reading a magazine, her expression heavy and relaxed with that post-coiffure glow. On the main chair on the platform, a deluxe number that leaned back to a custom shampoo sink, another young woman lay back with a blissful expression while having her hair washed. By Thomas.
He was chatting with her amiably as he worked, and she was in the middle of a little laugh when I came in. He leaned down and said something in her ear, and though I couldn't hear the substance of it, it came across in an unmistakable just-us-girls kind of tone, and she laughed again, replying in a similar manner. Thomas laughed and turned away, practically prancing over to a tray of styling implements, I supposed. He came back with a towel and, I swear to God, a dozen bobby pins held in his lips. He rinsed her hair and started pinning. Sir, protested the coffee girl who had followed me into the room. Everyone stopped and looked at me. Even the woman with the cucumbers over her eyes took one of them off and peered at me. Thomas froze. His eyes widened to the size of hand mirrors. He swallowed and the bobby pins fell out of his mouth. All the women looked back and forth between us, and there was an immediate buzz of whispers and quiet talks. You have got to be kidding me, I said. Oh, Thomas said. Harry. One of the stylists glanced back and forth between us and said, Tomas, who is your friend? Friend? Oy vey. I rubbed at the bridge of my nose with one hand. I was never going to get away from this one, not if I lived to be five hundred. Thomas and I sat down at a table over cups of coffee. This, I asked him without preamble, this is your mysterious job? This is the money-making scam? It was a cosmetology school first, Thomas said. He spoke in a French accent so thick that it barely qualified as English and night work as a security guard in a warehouse where no one else ever showed up to pay for it. I rubbed at my nose again. And then, this? Here I'm thinking you've created your own batch of personal thralls while running around as a hired killer or something, and you're washing hair? It was difficult to keep my voice quiet, but I made the effort. There were too many ears in that little place. Thomas sighed. Well, yes, washing, cutting, styling, dyeing, I do it all, baby. I'll bet. Then it hit me. That's how you're feeding, I said. I thought that took... Six, Thomas asked. He shook his head. Intimacy, trust, and believe me, next to sex, washing and styling a woman's hair is about as intimate as you can get with her. You're still feeding on them, I said. It isn't the same, Harry. It isn't as dangerous. More like sipping, I suppose, than taking bites. I can't take very much or very quickly, but I'm here all day, and it... He shivered. It adds up. He opened his eyes and met mine. And there's no chance I'm going to lose control of myself. They're safe, he shrugged his shoulder. They just enjoy it. I watched the woman who'd been under the hair dryer come out, smile at Thomas, and pick up a cup of coffee on the way out. She looked, well, radiant, really, confident. She looked like she felt sexy and beautiful, and it was quite pleasant to watch her move while she did. Thomas watched her go with what I recognized as his look of quiet possession and pride. They enjoy it a lot. He gave me one of his brief, swift grins. 
I imagine there's a lot of husbands and boyfriends enjoying it too. But they're addicted to it, I'd imagine. He shrugged again. Some, maybe. I try to spread myself around as much as I can. It isn't a perfect solution. But it's the one you've got, I said. I frowned. What happens when you try to wash somebody's hair and it turns out that they're in love, protected? True love isn't as common as you'd think, Thomas said, especially among people rich enough to afford me and superficial enough to think that it is money well spent. But when they do show, I asked, that's why I've got all the hired help, man. I know what I'm doing. I shook my head. All this time and... I snorted and sipped at some coffee. It was amazing. Smooth and rich and just sweet enough, and it probably cost more than a whole fast food meal. They all think I'm your lover, don't they? This is a trendy upper-class boutique, Harry. No one expects a man with a place like this to be straight. Uh-huh. And the accent, Tomas? He smiled. No one would pay that much money to an American stylist, please, he shrugged. It is superficial and silly, but true. He glanced around, suddenly self-conscious, his voice lowered and his accent dropped. Look, I know it's a lot to ask. It was an effort not to laugh at him, but I managed to give him a hard look, sigh, and say, Your secret is safe with me. He looked relieved. Merci. Hey, I said, can you stop by my place tonight after work? I'm putting something together that might help people if someone else starts something like those white court bozos just tried. I thought maybe you'd want to be in on it. Um, yeah. Yeah, we can talk about it. I sipped more coffee. Maybe Justine could help, too. Might be a way to get her out, if you want to do it. Are you kidding? Thomas asked. She's been working for a year to get closer to Lara. I blinked up at him. Hell's bells. I thought she was acting weird, I said. She came on all zonked out like the mindless party girl, but she dropped it a couple of times where I could see. I just put it down to, well, weirdness. He shook his head. She's been getting information to me. Nothing huge so far. Does Lara know about her? Thomas shook his head. She hasn't tipped to it yet. Justine is, as far as Lara is concerned, still one more helpless little doe. He glanced up. I talked it over with her. She wants to stay. She's Lara's assistant most of the time. I exhaled slowly. Holy crap. If Justine stayed in place and was willing to report on what she knew, intelligence gathered at that level could turn the entire course of the war because even if the White Court's peace proposal went through, it just meant a shift in focus and strategy. The vamps weren't about to let up. Dangerous, I said quietly. She wants to do it, he said. I shook my head. I take it you've been in touch with Lara. Of course, Thomas said. Given my recent heroism, his voice turned wry, in defense of the White King, I am now in favor in the court. The prodigal son has been welcomed home with open arms. Really? Well, Thomas amended, with reluctant, irritated arms anyway. 
Lara's miffed about the deeps. Guess the bombs weren't good for them. Thomas's teeth showed. The whole place just collapsed in on itself. There's a huge hole in the ground. The plumbing at the manor got torn up, and the foundation cracked. It's going to cost a fortune to fix it. Poor Lara, I said. No more convenient corpse disposal facilities. He laughed. It's nice to see her exasperated. She's usually so self-assured. I have a gift. He nodded. You do. We sat quietly for a few minutes. Thomas, I said finally, gesturing at the room. Why didn't you tell me about this? He shrugged and looked down. At first, because it was humiliating. I mean, working nights to put myself through cosmetology school? Starting my own place and posing as he waved a hand down at himself. I thought, I don't know. At first I thought you'd disapprove or laugh at me or something. I kept a straight face. No, never. And after that, well, I'd been keeping secrets. I didn't want you to think I didn't trust you. I snorted. In other words, you didn't trust me to understand. His cheeks turned very slightly pink and he looked down. Uh, I guess so, yeah. Sorry. Don't worry about it. He closed his eyes and nodded and said, Thanks, Harry. I put a hand on his shoulder for a second, then dropped it again. Nothing else needed to be said. Thomas gave me a suspicious look. Now you're going to laugh at me. I can wait until you've turned your back, if you like. He grinned at me again. It's all right. I sort of stopped caring about it after I got fed steady for a few weeks straight. Feels too nice not to be starving again. Laugh all you want. I looked around the place for a minute more. The coffee girls were having a private conversation, evidently discussing us, if all the covert glances and quiet little smiles were any indication. I couldn't help it. I burst out laughing. And it felt good. This is James Marsters. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of White Knight by Jim Butcher. This program was executive produced by Patty Peruse, produced by David Rapkin, and directed by Bob Walter. White Knight is a production of Penguin Audio, a member of Penguin Group USA, Inc. Copyright 2009. All rights reserved. The book, White Knight, is available wherever rock books are sold. <laughs>